Hello, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Riridis. Ah, it's, you know, you got to say it differently every once in a while, right? Valar Riridis is a journey through the books for people who have made the journey before, brought to you by people who have made the journey many times. George R. R. Martin has said before, and will say again, this series was designed to be reread. We're your tour guides on this journey, but even we doing this full-time can't catch everything. So if you're watching live, feel free to ask live questions or submit comments. Tell us what we missed or perhaps didn't consider. You can also do this in advance, sending questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Or you can always send us an email either through westeroshistory at gmail.com or by signing up for Patreon and becoming a member Westorian, which comes with benefits like early ep- access to scripted episodes, shout-outs, access to scripts, fun stuff like that. I just recently posted Jenny's song to Patreon. Yay, finally got that done. Pretty happy with how it came out, and a lot of you guys seem to feel the same way, which makes my heart warm. <laughs> this week, well, I can't say... It makes a lot of hearts warm. Makes a lot of hearts sad, I'd guess. Starting off with John 6, John warns the gang, a.k.a. the one with stabbing vibes. Catelyn 6, the one with a piece of Theon, a.k.a. the Red Wedding Reception Party. Aria 10, Red Wedding Crashers, a.k.a. the one where the hound robs a farmer. Catelyn 7, the one where people throw their book across the room, a.k.a. the actual Red Wedding. Aria 11, the gang fights Frey marriage, a.k.a. the one where George is mean to us. And Tyrion 6, the gang hears the news, a.k.a. the one where Joffrey gets sent to bed. Despite six chapters this week, there's relatively few pages in these chapters. The average chapter in this book is about 35 minutes long. I think I've said that a few times. And only one of these this week is over that 35-minute average. The two Aria chapters together are only about 26 minutes long, so well short of an average chapter, two combined, that is. But that's the nature of action scenes. Pacing doesn't allow for as many lengthy descriptions or extended conversations. There's not a lot of room for foreshadowing during an event that itself is so heavily foreshadowed. Of course, I'm referring to the Red Wedding. It is Red Wedding Week here on Valar Reredis. You can't foreshadow during such a heavily foreshadowed event because, hey, it's like planning a wedding while a wedding is in progress. Wait, the Purple Wedding comes nine chapters after the Red Wedding. Well, anyway, (laughs) the Red Wedding is truly climactic, but not in a things-are-ending kind of way that a lot of climaxes indicate. To use a metaphor that's awfully dark, a recurring theme that comes up literally and figuratively throughout the series is the notion that death pays for life. Sure, that's happening here, but it's not the lives we want, nor is it the deaths we want. That blood spilled gives power to those who spill it. Whether political power gained through the death of a rival or conquest by the sword or literal sacrifice in front of a heart tree or to the flames or the cold. Never forget that power lies where people believe it lies and power gained by the death of another can be lost by other means. And it is true that the worst actions engender the worst reactions. And the plot lines that die with the Red Wedding Hmm, give rise to new ones as well. 
some of which will haunt the originators of this most dire and momentous event. But first, before the Red Wedding, we've got a little John action. John 6. John warns the gang, a.k.a. the one with stabbing vibes. Of all the chapters we've covered in recent weeks, this is absolutely no question the one I'm rethinking the most. It might seem like a somewhat mundane chapter, all things considered. I mean, it's right next to the Red Wedding, which maybe grabs a lot of the spotlight. And there's so many big scenes that come after the Red Wedding too, like again, the Purple Wedding. So there's just so much going on around this part of the book that it's it can block out by extension some other things that are maybe just as important, but don't seem like they are as important at the time. A lot of what is important is only important because of what happens later. We don't realize it's important at the time. That's going to come up a lot when we review some of the Red Wedding foreshadowing. But right now, John getting back to the wall and being treated and feeling terrible about leaving Igrit and convincing Donald Noy that he's still loyal, there's a lot more going on. I'm saying this one has stabbing vibes, like I said. I don't even mean Red Wedding stuff. That's certainly a lot of stabbing. But I'm talking about John getting stabbed and for the possibility of him stabbing Daenerys. Hmm, yes. The first line of the chapter is. The mare was blown, but John could not let up on her. That one's a little strange out of context. <laughs> the mare was blown. Well, it's a mare, so at least. A recurring trigger for characters thinking about the Tower of Joy and John's parentage and all that is fever, right? Ned's fever dreams are a big deal earlier. And well, when Ned's having his fever dreams, he's thinking about, well, this is tragically synchronous as Liana dies of what was probably childbed fever. John's having his fever now, and it's putting him in a similar spot. But John's thinking of a grit, and this line is curious. You were wrong to love her, a voice whispered. You were wrong to leave her, a different voice insisted. He wondered if his father had been torn the same way when he'd left John's mother to return to Lady Catelyn. Well, hey, I wonder that too. Not for Ned, though. I mean, Rhaegar, John's real father. Was Rhaegar torn over Elia and Lyanna? Did he have a voice telling him he was wrong to leave Elia? Wrong to love Lyanna? Hmm. It's still an interesting question for Ned. He obviously had conflict too. But Ned wasn't aware of or acting on prophecy that we know of. Making questions around Rhaegar... Well, that's something that's a difference between the two. Rhaegar was dealing with prophecy, and for better or worse, that makes things different, at least. It's a sad irony for John in that he thinks Ned left his, John's, mother because he was pledged to Catelyn. Ned didn't leave Lyanna. He brought her bones back to Winterfell and John with him, trying to stay faithful to the promise he made her. Check out this little sneaky ice and fire John quote from Donald Noy. You're white as milk and burning hot besides. Yeah, well, that pretty much speaks for itself. <laughs> and then John gets the bad news. Your brothers were avenged, Gren said. Bolton's son killed all the Iron Men. And it said he's flaying Theon Greyjoy inch by inch for what he did. Rob and Kat are going to learn this in the next chapter through Roos. And Roos himself is the one who tells them, and he's known for quite a while. But John is confused because he's just seen Summer, 
and the wolf helped him escape the Thens. It doesn't really seem like the thing a dire wolf without a master would do, unless... If Bran was dead, could some part of him live on in his wolf as Orel lived within his eagle? This is a highly relevant question for John himself more than it is for Bran. Obviously, Bran didn't die, but John will, and it's a longstanding theory that he'll have his second life in Ghost, only to be pulled back into his body, probably by Melisandre, but just in general, that seems like what's going to happen. It's a big question, and there's a lot of interesting skin-changer vibes, not just in this chapter, but in Arya's, and surrounding Rob's death as well. So I suppose we could say that's one of the themes of these chapters, other than, you know, lots of people dying. <laughs> John is haunted by the look on Ygritte's face when she's killing that old man. And as we said at the time, that old man represents what John is fighting to save. Ygritte is the foreign invader willing to kill. Think of Daenerys. Again, we've been comparing Ygritte to Daenerys quite a lot, and for obvious reasons, there's a lot of parallels between the two. Now, if, if John kills Daenerys, it'll probably be because she's killing innocents. It's really hard to imagine John having a motivation other than saving innocent lives from, you know, as far as a reason why he would have to kill Daenerys. What other thing does John care about so much that he would kill someone he loves for? It's really hard to perceive or conceive of a, a different reason. We don't necessarily know which innocents, but probably just lots of them. Maybe members of John's family are included in this somehow. Regardless, it's not going to be jealousy or ambition. I don't think, from John. I mean, that just doesn't seem like the kind of person John is. Unless, well, we just talked about his second life process and going into ghost and then coming back into his own body. Maybe that changes his personality. After all, well, if John is being rebooted, if this is John 2.0 coming, then we maybe should set aside some of our preconceptions about him. After all, Beric Dondarrion changed somewhat, right? Well, somewhat. I mean, he didn't change a lot. He just lost some of his memories. So it's maybe too much to think that his personality will change that much. But still, we want to cover all the bases and throw that out there as a possibility. If we want to take the Danny and Igrit metaphor further, well, Igrit is part of a mixed force of Fens and raiders from other clans coming to invade. It's not a bad microcosm of Danny's army. I mean, she's got a huge mix of cultures and, and types of warriors in her army as well. And it's there, and they're all foreigners if you're a Westerosi. Maester Eamon has knives heated up as hot as possible to treat John here. He uses them to sear John's wounds while Donald Noy holds him down. So you see where I'm going with these stabbing vibes? Two of his sworn brothers holding him down and knifing him. <laughs> Great pain is being inflicted. And yeah, obviously it's the cleansing fire, not the killing sort. The knife is a boon here. But the idea of a knife and stabbing someone and this being of benefit. Hmm, yeah, you see where I'm going? Later, of course, brothers wielding knives are going to come for him to open wounds, not treat them. But hmm, yeah, think about Danny and think about that. Compare John's physical pain here to the kind of anguish he'd feel if he's, if he's killed his own lover. He finds Ygritte dead in his next chapter, and he's relieved that it wasn't him that did it. He can tell because it's not his arrow. Well, with Daenerys, it's going to have to be him 
He's not going to be able to pass that responsibility off to somebody else. He's not going to find someone else's arrow in her. You know, it's definitely going to be him. He's going to have to wield the knife himself, assuming this happens at all. And here's a quote that you can imagine this as Daenerys instead of himself or as a grip. The pain was so huge. He felt small and weak and helpless inside it. A child whimpering in the dark. He grit, he thought, when the stench of burning flesh was in his nose and his own shriek echoing in her ears. He grit, I had to. Substitute Danny, I had to. That same sense of helplessness mixed in. It fits pretty damn well. And even more so if we dig deeper. In the Azor High legend, having failed in prior attempts, he plunges the newly forged Lightbringer into Nissa Nissa's heart. The sword is fresh from the fire, a bit like the knives or a lot like the knives in this scene, preheated before being plunged in. They have the heat that Stannis' Lightbringer does not, by the way. It only has light, no heat. But it's the fire that burns, not the light cast by it, isn't it? That shows where the real power of that is. While this highly suspicious symbolic knifing of John by a fellow Targaryen, by the way, Aemon, <laughs> is going on, they discuss, what else, to quote that fellow Targaryen, Maester Aemon, ancient legend, the Horn of Winter, right? <laughs> that's what they're talking about. What, that's what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might as well fit in bringing down the wall into all this talk of prophecy and, and John's foreshadowing and Danny's foreshadowing. Might as well fit Azor High into everything else with bringing down the wall and, and the Horn of Winter. It's all, yeah, why not all the big prophecies at once? Now, Eamon, of course, says, I want to talk to you about this later, John. He, <laughs> Yeah, I wish we had ever really gotten that conversation. Eamon knows a few things about prophecies and dragon dreams himself, after all. Nina wonders how much, in total, of study of supernatural and legends Eamon has done. It's probably... A, quite a bit. He showed interest in it from an early early point in life, as far as we know. He pauses in this chapter, right? When John says Horn of Winter, it, it really gets his attention. And so he's heard of it. He knows about it. He's familiar with it. He's clearly read about it. Uh, he's surprised that the wildlings think it's real, but that's what they're operating on. And of course, he's the one that asks about the heat on Lightbringer when he encounters it for the first time. He says, well, I don't feel any heat. Is, is it bright? And he's like, oh yeah, it's really bright, but yeah, there's no heat. We wonder if Eamon has a Valyrian still living. I would guess he probably does. I mean, Lewin has one and Eamon seems far deeper into these mysteries than Lewin ever was. But, you know, it's not a sure thing. The end of the chapter has perhaps more direct foreshadowing for Egret herself, maybe, as John is dreaming of being with her in the Winterfell pools. Of course, that's reminds us of Danny as well. But in terms of Ygritte's actual death, you see that happen here. And that seems to be part of what, at least part of what's being foreshadowing here. He does burn her body afterwards. And in this dream, her skin dissolves in hot water as she tells him he knows nothing. Nina says it's kind of retro foreshadowing for Rhaegar and Lyanna. John's thinking that he's reluctant to father a bastard, but Ygritte's telling him, you know nothing. In other words, well... <laughs> you're not a bastard yourself probably john and and if you are well there's nothing really that wrong with it as ned in the tree's face watches a grit is dissolved in the water only until her bones remain not unlike liana's body which well ned had to 
Ned brought her bones back only because, you know, he couldn't haul her whole body back. So, you know, her bones were probably boiled down as well before bringing Bob back to Winterfell. So lots of uh, Liana vibes here as well, not just Danny Igrits being uh, kind of a, a three-way character in these scenes, herself, of course, and Danny and Liana. Now, speaking of John knowing nothing, this again refers to potentially to his resurrection and the loss of memories. Well, second life, losing memories, that definitely fits in with the concept of knowing nothing, especially uh, forgetting things and having known things, but no longer knowing them. And you know, maybe not knowing that much in the first place. <laughs> it's interesting, too, that Castle Black, this is the first time we've seen Castle Black since A Clash of Kings. And, well... We're going to be seeing a lot of it again for a while. It's back to being a major location. And it's one of the biggest locations in the series. Of course, Winterfell, we haven't been there in a while and won't be there again until um, Dance with Dragons. And King's Landing, of course, is really important. And Harrenhal is really important. Those are probably the, the biggest four locations. Winterfell, King's Landing, Castle Black, and Harrenhal. But of course, there's other important locations too. And who knows what'll be the biggest by the end of it all. But that's where it seems to be sitting right now. Castle Black also is portrayed as just so, so weak. It's, quote, as much a ruin as Greyguard almost, it seems, which is bad because there's weeds growing in the yard. There's just 40 people there defending it, apparently. It's in sorry state, and that's just evocative and telling as far as its outlook. And there's some very interesting connections to Catelyn V, which was the chapter with, that discussed succession so much. We talk, it talked about Balon's succession, about Rob's succession. It talked about, well, just lots of different su successions. And here we go again with the Night's Watch. As John learns that Gior Mormon is dead, and just as Rob is discussing that John is probably his heir, well we're about to find out indirectly that John is also the heir of the Night's Watch. Of course, it's not an hereditary succession. Of course, I don't mean that literally. He doesn't inherit it. But Gior Mormont did intend for him to follow, and that is what happens. He does get voted in. So it's certainly a vote, but it's interesting to have this paralleled with John being probably named in Rob's will just as he's finding out he's the Night's Watch needs a new Lord Commander, and it's going to be him. Vibjorn Gagnat wonders, can you know nothing mean knowing about the nothingness? Hmm, interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. That's a good question. You know, with George, there's always multiple meanings, almost always multiple meanings. And I think that really well could work because certainly we don't know how John's going to react to being dead. And I don't want to get too deep into his re how he reacts to that in the show, but he does kind of describe it as just nothing. And I wonder if that's, he might not, I don't think he's going to say that in the books because he's going to go, especially if he goes into ghosts, that won't be nothing. That'll be, well, living inside a wolf's mind. There might be a lot of nothingness to, associated with that. And maybe there's some nothing in between that, in between passing into ghosts or in between going back. There's some Jamie John parallels here as well. When John's being operated on when there's the hot knife on him and everything. He's banging the table with his hand. That's what Jamie does as well when he's having his stump seared similarly. Maybe not a whole lot to do with that, but it's interesting to think about how these characters are both changing so much 
There's so much loss and separation from their family. The Bolton propaganda is working. And then in the very next chapter we're going to cover, which is Cat 6, we're going to hear a very similar story that we hear here from Gren and Pip, which is they say that Ramsey saved the people of Winterfell from Theon. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, that's not really the truth, as we know. That's not really a sneaky thing to say because the readers know what really happened. So it's just sad to see John be misled like that. And then we're going to see it again in the next chapter. But that tells you something. Uh, for one thing, it shows you how news is traveling. It gives you a little bit of uh, indication how close these chapters are together, which seems to be pretty close. And now, Catelyn Six. The one with a piece of Theon, a.k.a. the Red Wedding Reception Party. I really should have called this chapter the one with all the double entendres because they are as multiple as the phrase themselves and double meanings are awfully fitting. At the twins, huh. the first line is, They heard the green fork before they saw it, an endless susurrus like the growl of some great beast. It's quite a warning. I mean, yeah, the growl of some great beast saying stay away, but of course they don't know better. When I, 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 I didn't know what Cerus meant. <laughs> and a lot of people wouldn't have searched it, I don't think. I just wanted to say, it's a whispering, like a rustling, just a sound. Oh, cool. Right yeah. on. Anyways. When Arya sees the same river, she hears the sound too, but she's more specific. Instead of a beast, she calls it like a lion, which, well, so that symbolizes the lion of Lannister's influence here. And in a second, Grey Wind starts growling and he there it's said that oh he must be put off by the river <laughs> so they're saying the thing that sounds like a lion is the thing that gray wind is reacting to indeed gray wind does smell the lion's influence behind all of this and knows the ill intent there speaking of the animals Walder is noted to look like a vulture and a weasel. Now, a weasel, of course, that's a little more straightforward. It's tricky and treacherous and, you know, cunning, etc. But the vulture is a bird that eats carrion. It's, it doesn't do the killing itself. It lets other people do the killing or lets other people do the dying just from natural causes or what have you. And it circles and circles and waits. And well, Walder is a very perfect fit for that because he doesn't do any killing himself. He just watches. You know, he's too old for that. And think of Euron and his speech about crows and how good they are at sensing death. He says, you know, who's better to spying death from afar than the crow? And, and he says that Westeros is dying and the crow's eye spies this. And of course, he's right. The Westeros has torn itself apart. It is in terrible shape. And he senses that opportunity. He is the crow spying that weakness of Westeros. It's very similar in this context. The crow and the vulture, in terms of carrion, in terms of sensing weakness, in terms of seeing death coming soon and taking advantage of that, that is exactly what's happened here. They're waiting to feast on the dead. They do this when they sense death. Lord Walder sees the death of the kingdom of North and Rivers and wishes to profit from it, wishes to feast on that corpse. And he's going to help that corpse become a corpse. He's rushing it along a bit. Here's that line. Kind of summarizes Rob's entire campaign, doesn't it? He's a dire wolf, not a dog, said Rob. And dangerous to men he does not trust. Sir Reynolds, stay with him. 
I won't take him into Lord Walder's hall like this. Deftly done, Catelyn decided. Rob keeps the Westerling out of Lord Walder's sight as well. Yeah, that was gr- indeed deftly done. Those are good tactics, but it misses the big, p- big picture. He's right to be wary of Walder's pride, but wrong as to why they should be wary of Walder's pride. Rob is looking past all this. He's going through all the motions, saying all the right things, but neither he nor Cat, maybe Cat a little, but Rob doesn't seem to doubt the outcome much. They, they're they kind of like, okay, we got to go through this, eat our stewed crows and be insulted and all that. But they expect at the end of this, they're going to have the phrase as allies again. They don't really detect how bad this could be. So they just expect success at the end of this. And that's kind of, that's the problem. So as we saw in the last chapter, yeah, Rob is thinking more about the battles after the wedding than the wedding itself, which, well, is a battle. Hmm. Wolves, like predators tend to be, not unlike crows and vultures, are good at identifying weakness. Wolves don't go for the biggest meal, they go for the easiest meal. This is true in politics as well, and it kind of shows the way Rob did his strategy. He never did direct attacks on Tywin's army. He was outnumbered. He found weaker targets and hit them and used his mobility. Attack Jamie when Tywin's big army is waiting for him at the Green Fork. Tywin's waiting for him at Harrenhal. Go west and attack Tywin's weaker, new-forming army run by Stafford Lannister and pick off his supply trains and pick off his smaller, undefended castles. But now, this is turned around. It's true in politics as well. You go for the easy meal, the opportunistic power players take what's there. Rob lost his home. Rob lost his brothers and his sisters. He's lost many of his allies. He broke his sworn word on a marriage vow. He's politically weak. The crows, the vultures, they're circling. It's a tragic irony that a wolf king will fail to notice the kind of weaknesses that a wolf would itself sense quite easily. A predator like Bolton or Frey or Lannister or, you know, lions, well, they sense weakness just like wolves. Now, I'm not calling Rob stupid. I'm not even calling him foolish. Call him what you want. That's not the point here. The Red Wedding was unprecedented. I think it's going too far to say they should have seen this coming when nothing like it has ever happened. How are you supposed to see something that's never happened (laughs) coming, right? Kat had a sense of it. I mean, she demands Rob ask for bread and salt. She's right to do that, I guess, for all the good it'll do. But I don't think it's going too far to say they didn't take it seriously enough. They were short on their considerations. They never weighed what it would look like on the other side. They never thought, well, what would Walder Frey gain by betraying us? They need to put themselves in his shoes. And the same with the Boltons. They need to put themselves in the Boltons' shoes and think, well, what would, what would they gain by betraying us? That's how you detect threats against you, is you look to see if they would make sense. Because ruthless opportunism doesn't care about loyalty. If the opportunity is there for someone to betray you, you better be wary of it. This is not the way that Rob and Kat think, though. And this is really important because they worry about Walder's wounded pride, not what Tywin could offer him in exchange to assuage that wounded pride. They're thinking about the pride and not what that pride leads to. To them, the pride is the end of it. And that's, that's a hole in their thinking. There's also the matter of Grey Wind and how important he is to Rob's survival and protection. I mean, Grey Wind was spending less time with Rob because Jane is getting frightened of him. Now, Jane isn't even here. 
And that allows for Grey Wind to be back around Rob, but no. <laughs> Rob is also keeping Grey Wind less around because he thinks he's getting wilder. But think what Rob could be doing here. I don't like to do too many, you know, what ifs or if only they had. But just imagine a more aggressive, more authoritative Rob just having all his vassals come forward for a sniffing. <laughs> Everyone gets sniffed by Grey Wind every once in a while. It's like a periodic drug test. Sniffed by Grey Wind. I mean, imagine if he had gotten a whiff of Bolton. Maybe Roose Bolton is just so cold that he wouldn't give off that scent of fear. But what about on the actual day of the wedding? Grey Wind would have, you know, smelled the armor under their wedding garb, if not their fear or anxiety or whatever other things they can smell. You know, wolves and dogs can smell things that we don't have words for. And, well, he was growling right off the bat. Yeah, even if it isn't like anxiety or fear, it could be like tenseness, readiness. Yeah, yeah, you know, something, right? Yeah, it's just like we can't put Working these themselves words. up to aggression, yeah, you know? Yeah, and you know, like the way people like Ryman and other guys, they were really like, they were very good at acting. That's thing we'll cover in a little bit, that these some of these frays are just not very good at concealing <laughs> what's going on in, in, their, in their heads. Kat's the most wary of all, and she's not wary enough, probably. And no one listens to her anymore anyway, which is pretty sad. And not just sad that they weren't listening to her, but just sad for her that people aren't listening to her from a human perspective. Rob is worried about the wrong things, and like I said, thinking past this event entirely. And Edmure is even more off track. Edmure is entirely concerned with what Rosalind will look like and not much else. He's so relaxed and unwary that he takes a nap. That's one of the things that really gets me on reread is Edmure's like, you know, I'm just going to take a nap. It's like, oh man. <laughs> I think that is just a George telling us just of all the people, he's the most oblivious <laughs> here. And I like Edmure a lot, but he is not uh, a plotter. He's yeah, not most an people intriguer. before they were going to get married. Yeah. They're going to be anxious. It's hard <laughs> for them to take a nap, I think. Yeah, kind of. Maybe he's, maybe we're not giving him enough credit for his. <laughs> maybe he didn't actually go take a nap. He like went back to his room and just cried. <laughs> yeah, he's just pretending, putting on a brave face. Just as George occasionally uses unusual things like action to foreshadow other things or to give clues to things that are happening at the same time. Edmure's consternation over what Rosalind might look like is in itself a clue. It's not just generic peevishness about a man concerned what his wife is going to look like. I mean, it's that, but it's not just that. Kat expects the quarters given to them to be bare. She's just saying, I kind of expect Walder to take little opportunities to insult us and to make us uncomfortable because that's the kind of man he is. She's not thinking about brutal, bloody murder. She's thinking about minor insults. So when she sees the quarters are nice, she's like, oh, well, these rooms are nice. I'm pleasantly surprised. Really, though, that should have been a bigger alarm. She said, wait, this is even worse. <laughs> Why is he being so generous? This is suspicious. So unfortunately, these clues, some of these clues are misinterpreted. But it's, it's almost fun to see them the second time, third time, fourth time through, if only for what it's leading to. That's the part that's not as fun. It's during these thoughts, too, that Edmure wonders out loud to her why Lord Walder gave him Rosalind. She's, she's also much nicer than expected. So like Catelyn, he's baffled. Like, why is she good-looking? They expected a lot more rudeness. They expected insults. Well, yeah. Rosalind is also a trap because they don't really expect to have a kid with, with him and her. They have 
Well, as we'll see later, the real plan is not for Edmure to inherit, Edmure's son to inherit River Run. It's for Walder's second son, Eamon, to get it. And he does get it. A little more on that later. No one exemplifies this false courtesy disguised issue that lame Lothar. He's the most overtly courteous by far and the most responsible for engineering the Red Wedding in the first place. It was his plan. He's clearly an exception to the phrase being bad at acting, though not an exception to them as bad actors, if you get my meaning. Uh, When they arrived from the North the very first time back in A Game of Thrones, the greeters were Sir Perwin and Sir Stevron and two others who went unnamed. Sir Stevron is now dead, possibly thanks to Black Walder, but he was known for being courteous. And ditto Sir Perwin, who was one of the few phrases that didn't participate in the Red Wedding. Now instead, we get Stevron's son, Sir Ryman, who in this scene is heir to the twins. So, you know, it's, it's the heir coming to greet them in both cases. Now, Ryman's going to die in A Dance with Dragons at the hands of Lady Stoneheart's brotherhood without banners. So the current heir, as things stand at the end of the series where it is now, is Edwin, which is Ryman's oldest son, and he's in this scene too. And with Edwin is the aforementioned Black Walder, who's his younger brother, and Peter Pimple, who's their younger brother. So Black Walder and Edwin and Peter are full brothers, and they're grandsons of Sir Stevron, meaning Lord Walder's great-grandchildren. None of them are known for their courtesy, however. So this is a much different group of phrase, even though it's structurally the same, meaning the heir and his next of kin are right there. So rank-wise, it's the same. But in terms of personality, very different. Now, this might be intentional. In fact, it's probably intentional. We know how these things are. It's always planned. Just like it was with Tyrion and Oberyn, the people chosen for these greeting parties. It says a lot about both sides. They ex- they have, there's expectations. So much is wrapped up in it, we'll say. I picture Lord Walder in some secret chamber, kind of like the Bolton's uh, chamber where they have the flayed skins. Lord Walder's secret chamber. He has all these dossiers like Mission Impossible, where he's just looking at them and like, okay, which, which Frey child is, is right for this mission? He goes through each dossier, picks the right phrase for each mission based on their personality. <laughs> the Freys knew they'd have to be careful about Grey Wind. That's another thing they surely, surely planned in advance. And of course, since the wolf gets upset right away, probably because he senses the deception and the, the emotions they're hiding, Blackwalder responds to this. He draws his sword and accuses of Rob of coming for blood. That's a ridiculous accusation as far as truthfulness, but it's clever enough to put Rob on the defensive even more than he already is. Rob's already trying hard to be nice and to be apologetic and not be aggressive and just to take whatever is comes. He's not going to fire back with insults. That is part of what allows them to be so adamant about the wolf. As in, as in Rob is trying so hard to be giving and to accede to whatever they want, he can't really make a big deal about keeping Grey Wind. And that's a big part of their general plan, I think. Make Rob feel as guilty as possible. Keep him, keep, keep him reeling. Keep him apologetic. He said, Ryman says, I do not see the woman, <laughs> referring to Jane. And Black Walder is just angry the whole time. So really, this greeting is, is quite testy. And, and I don't think it's all about Grey Wind's reaction. Catelyn catches on to this. He notices, she thinks, thinking about this greeting party and, and how it all went. And she's slightly peeved that Walder didn't come out since 
with Hoster dead, Edmure is his liege now. Edmure is also, you know, Edmure, Catelyn notices this. Edmure is kind of like, why didn't he come out? And again, we see Edmure's pride. He's got pride too. But they chalk this up, fittingly enough, to Walder's pride. An easy thing to do. You know, they're talking about how he's in a litter, all that. But again, Walder cares more about power than pride. And that is what they keep missing. Now, of course, there's also just no one. They think about how Walder can't kneel because he's in a litter or he would be in a litter. But no one kneels. All these healthy frays come out. Edwin, Ryman, none of them. None of them kneel. Not even think about it. And they call Queen Jane the woman. I mean, it's, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're aggressive right away. Speaking of who's there and whose presence is there and, and what that means, Kat thinks about Jingle Bell. Poor little Aegon. Or not little, but, you know, poor Aegon, the lackwit, as they call him. Not a very friendly name. But he's usually, Catelyn recalls, that he's kept away. They are, they're embarrassed by him, so they keep him hidden. However, here, he's just right there, out in the open, and wearing a crown with that might be mocking Rob. And paired with that, we have missing the phrase, who are honorable. We're missing Olivar, we're missing Perwin. So, Put those two things together, you've got the ones that they used to keep hidden out and the ones they usually uh, display because they're the nicest and most chivalrous are not there. So that's a pretty big clue. Now, more importantly, though, think of the, or maybe more importantly, who knows how important all these things are relative to each other, but they're all important. Think about the crossing game where you have to say mayhaps. It's, the, it's a game about technicalities. It's the well actually of games. Walder even brings it up here. He reminds us of that game right here in this chapter. Quote, When you came down from the north, you wanted crossing and I gave it to you. And you never said mayhaps. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, technically, technically, before the bread and salt happened, before there was any claiming of guest right, now that is going to happen. Rob's going to specifically ask for it. But before, what has already happened? Black Walder has drawn his sword. He's met them with bared steel. So technically speaking, well, Rob says this to Tyrion way back in A Game of Thrones. Any man of the Night's Watch is welcome here at Winterfell for as long as he wishes to stay. Rob was saying with the voice of Rob the Lord. His sword was across his knees, the steel bare for all the world to see. Even Bran knew what it meant to greet a guest with an unsheathed sword. Mm, Even Bran, even a youngster, even a seven or eight-year-old or whatever he was in that scene. I think seven. Blackwalder has just done what Rob did. It's just done what Rob did? (laughs) He met him with bared steel, the traditional hostile greeting, technically speaking, or, well, actually, we gave you bread and salt after greeting you with bared steel. So... Yeah, that's one for the Westerosi lawyers to get to work on. Another one of those. Speaking of, shout out to, oh shoot, what is their name? I've, already, I've forgotten the name of their new show. Clint and Maester Mary have started a Westeros law pod and it's, it's fantastic. I listened to the first episode. So check them out. It, they handle questions exactly like this. The Knights Watch Oath, the Kingsguard Vows, exactly questions like this. It's wonderful. And they're both real lawyers, so they know their stuff. And of course, Speaking of technicalities and lawyerly phrasing and such, Lord Walder, he is full of such. I told you guys this was a I chapter of double entendres, but... Learned hands. 
Learned Hands. Oh, thank you very much, Shay. I looked it up. It's called Learned Hands Podcast. Definitely give them a check out and a follow and tell them what you think. They're, they're taking questions for legal, uh, legal conundrums and from Westeros. I've already sent them a few. I'm sure you guys have a few ideas as well. Anyway, here is that lawyerly phrasing by Lord Walder. Good, the Lord of the Cross and said. That was very good, your grace. No words can set it right. <laughs> well said, well said. <laughs> yep, double entendre city. No words can set it right. <laughs> no words, but a slaughter and a deal with Tywin. You think that's going to set it right? Well, I got news for you, Walder. That's not going to set it right either, but can't blame him for trying. Here are a few more clues in a chapter that is probably and fittingly number one in Red Wedding vibes. Of course, it's the chapter right before the Red Wedding. Two chapters, technically, but one Catelyn chapter before. So, of course, it's going to be chock full. But there are so many, it's insane. Rosalind is crying when Edmure meets her. And Walder has her sent back to her chambers after the barest of conversation because Edmure asks, hey, why are you crying? And, well, the phrase don't want to get too deep into that conversation, do they? Rosalind knows. The quote, she has been waiting this day most anxiously, poor maid, says Edwin. Yeah, you think she's anxious about this? This is, talk about a bad wedding day. I mean, this is worse than Sansa's, right? I mean, it's it's not worse than poor Jane Poole's, but it is worse than Sansa's even. Having, knowing that when you get taken away for the betting, everyone's going to get murdered. Knowing that you're bait for a, like, for a trout, I mean, essentially. It's so bad. And this is how Walder treats his family. It's very much like Tywin. This insult to our family must not be born, yet I'm going to insult and abuse my own family in the process of fixing this insult. (laughs) So after the no words can set it right, well said, well said, he says, quote, You may weep and whisper after your wed. (laughs) Benfrey, see your sister back to her chambers. She has a wedding to prepare for and a betting <laughs> the sweetest part. For all, for all, yeah. his mouth moved in and out. We'll have music, such sweet music and wine. <laughs> the red will run and we'll put some wrongs aright. Sweet music? We know the music is extremely terrible and it's not, it wouldn't be sweet even if it wasn't extremely terrible. We got non-musicians up there. The red will run? Ooh. Yeah, that's true, the blood. The betting being the sweetest part. Well, again, the betting is when they go and do the killing. So while Edmure is thinking he's having his first night with his bride, which he is having, she's going to be still crying, and it's because she knows what's going on out there. Weep after they're wed? I mean, she's weeping during and after, and yeah, she's going to lots of weeping for her. Talk about a couple that will not want to remember their wedding day. Edmure's going to be shipped off in chains. Hey, what was that line from the Ghost of High Heart? Chains for the bridegroom? Hmm, yep. Actually, no, wait, that was, that was Patchface, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, that was Patchface. It was a chains for the bridegroom. But Ghost of High Heart did mention the ringing of Jingle Bell's bells. Yeah, it's the saddest song, sa- sound was the little tinkly bells. And of course, there's the separation from Grey Wind and his mistrust of the phrase. We got that in the Ghost of High Heart's quotes as well. And of course, the indicator that something bad's about to happen with Grey Wind being separated and him mistrusting the phrase. And here's another one. Across the turbulent waters, Catelyn could see several thousand men encamped around the eastern castle, their banners hanging like so many drowned cats. 
from the lances outside their tents. Of course, Catelyn herself is about to be thrown in the river after she's killed. Drowned cat, there you go. And of course, all those men pretty much are all going to die too. So they're going to be hanging like drowned cats. They're not going to be hanged, but they may as well be. Death is death. You know, I don't suppose they're going to quibble about the method of death too much. Most of them are going to be burned or trampled or shot or stabbed. So many of these clues are hard to catch in the first time through, though, right? I mean, there's so many, but, and that's what makes this so amazing. It's like, how did we miss all these? There's so many clues. The atmosphere is gloomy. I mean, there's that too. The rain, rain is never a good sign, literally speaking. It's, it's, it's often meant to be ominous. And well, it's hard to resolve something more ominously than this. Things have been going poorly for Rob lately. So maybe if you're optimistic when reading this the first time, you might think, ah, this is when it's going to start turning around. It's going to get back on track. George R. R. Martin uses Walder's sarcasm as a disarming tactic here. A little comic relief when Rob is looking at all of Walder's unmarried girls, you know, grand and great, all these grandchildren, great-grandchildren, so many of them. He says, they're all too lovely. Lord Walder snorted. <laughs> And they say my eyes are bad. <laughs> it serves as the one humorous moment in what is otherwise a prominent theme of girls treated as nothing more than breeding vessels. It's like a cattle show. It's the major theme of this chapter. Lord Walder, of course, is by far the worst. He's completely unfiltered and shameless and referring to his own kids and grandkids and so forth out loud. As I mean, he calls them, he uses the word stock. <laughs> like you, you think maybe calling them cattle is going too far, but he literally calls them stock. And he jokes about how ugly they are in front of them. He tells a sweet little four-year-old girl she doesn't belong with the rest because she's a bastard. I mean, come on. This guy is so bad. Catelyn is in this mode too. She's not even, I mean, she's way better than Walder. She doesn't have the rudeness or the shamefulness. She's got the grace to keep it to herself. But all while Walder is, is making these comments, she also is looking at these girls' bodies and judging their childbearing capacity. This is the world they live in, but it's, it's rough to see that, right? To see everyone doing this. And of course, this is paired with Edmure, just constantly concerned with what Rosalind's going to look like. To make it worse, to make this tough reality, fantasy reality even worse, how are all these various young Frey girls going to be treated when the inevitable reprisals come for House Frey? I were I worried about that. They're innocent. They're innocent. There's some historical anecdotes here merged with all this. Walder says there's some who like a woman broken in when referring to the widowed Amory Frey. Again, how, uh, more animal metaphors for for women. And he would know it was toddler Walder Frey who discovered his elder sister having sex with a kitchen servant. And it was her wedding to Lord Butterwell that was the stage for the second Blackfire Rebellion as portrayed in the short story, The Mystery Night. Aegon III, after the Dance of the Dragons and his first wife's death, Aegon III was presented with a huge number of girls as potential brides. It was called The Maiden's Day Cattle Show by Mushroom the Dwarf Jester. And now, interesting take by Nina here. She notices that we talked about the Tully's and Hoster Tully and Blackfish. And in that generation, it was when the Targaryens rejected Celia Tully during the time of Aegon V, the unlikely, when all his kids broke their various betrothals to marry for love. Well, we talked about how that impacted the Tully family and there it broke their long, long loyalty to the Targaryens and led, potentially led to them eventually joining Robert Baratheon's rebellion. 
if they hadn't, if, if it hadn't been for this insult, they may have stayed loyal to the to, to King Ares. So Nina extends this idea to Lord Walder. He saw what happens when kings break their sworn marriage vows, and it really bad. It, it, that caused a lot of turmoil. There was rebellions. There was lots of blood spilled because of those broken betrothals. You can blame the system for that. Sure, I, I, I'm right there with you. But nonetheless, what Lord Walder isn't thinking about systems. He's thinking about how this is going to affect him. And if he sees broken marriage vow, look what happens. He can, he's got more perspective than most over what Rob's broken marriage vow really means. So obviously, I'm not trying to defend Lord Walder's position. But like we do with Tywin, we still want to get inside their head as much as possible and see what their motivations are and understand why they operate the way they do. We're not going to get to the bottom of Walder's brain and think about all his activities and say, oh, actually, this is understandable. <laughs> we understand why Walder behaved this way. I, under, I get it. Well, we might get it. That doesn't mean we're going to agree with it. So you can do this with characters you don't like. We can try to unpack Ramsey Snow. We can try to unpack Roose Bolton. We can do that with Tywin. We can do that with Lord Walder because it does help us understand the way ambitious, greedy people behave. That's part of their, their people too. And I don't mean that they deserve respect like everybody else, but it's important to understanding the, the wide pastiche that is human behavior. You got to think about the bad people too if you want to understand human behavior. It's part of one of the lessons of George R. R. Martin. Bad behavior is part of the human experience. Even if we personally don't engage in it, it's going to affect our lives, whether directly or indirectly. You know, not in situations like this, not in people getting killed at a wedding, but there's evil people in this world and in our lives. And if we want to try to seek to understand how, why they're behaving that way, well, you got to get inside their heads, as ugly as it is. Speaking of ugliness... When Catelyn thinks about wanting to clutch that grisly trophy of Theon Greyjoy's skin, Nina reminds us of Alyssa Valerian, who was presented with the heads of the ones who were guilty of torturing her son Viserys. That was during Magor's rule. Remember, Magor the Cruel had his own squire, his own nephew, Viserys, tortured and hanged. And Alyssa got the heads of those who did that to him. And she pronounced herself well-pleased with those heads. And Archmaester Rennie points out that this is some major Stoneheart vibes, right? Getting revenge because Stoneheart's about to be very much geared towards revenge. So this is the last time that she perhaps rejects that notion for being too dark. Does uh, she say heart explicitly too? My question. Clutch it to heart. Yes, I believe so. Interesting. Yeah. We've been keeping track of Rob's manpower off and on here. And you can really see how far it's fallen. Rob had 3,500 men. It was specifically pointed out last time during Catelyn 5. Ruse Bolton shows up at 3,500 men. They're all supposed to be Rob's, but the men with Roos are almost all, by this point, Dreadfort and Karstark men. So obviously the Dreadfort men are Roos's first and foremost. And the latter, well, they're Karstark men. They're not too happy with Rob. So in a sense, George is telling us Roos has the same manpower as Rob now thanks to treating all those men a bit like animals too. I mean, they were literally led to the slaughter by Roos, right? He, he gave false orders, sent them into battles he knew they would lose. This was all engineered. So if we're going really far with our people as cattle metaphors, what we just described about the women, it's like they're dairy cows, men for breeding and milking. And the men here are beef cattle, men to be killed. Look at how ominous the last line of the chapter is. 
You will have command of my rear guard, Lord Bolton. I mean to start for the neck as soon as my uncle has been wedded and bedded. We're going home. No, you're not. Your rear guard. I'm <laughs> putting Bolton. Yeah, let's have Bruce Bolton watch your back. <laughs> That's perfect. Ugh. And of course, it's the conversation just before this, before they decide to go back, is where Bruce describes a lot of the military action that happened off screen as he was making his way to the twins. And we've been covering some of that action, certainly the engineered losses at Duskendale, but also what the new information here is his men as he's traveled from Hall, like I said, to the twins. Nina says it's important to emphasize how crucial Roose Bolton's military role is to the success of the Red Wedding, that is. It's not just arranging for the leaders to be in the right place at the right time so they can all be killed in one fell swoop. They need to get rid of the Rob loyalists too. They need to get rid of all these soldiers because what happens in the North? Well, the North somewhat tries to rise for Rob, especially when Stannis comes on the scene and gives them a leader to rally behind. Look at how eager those mountain plans are to get back at the Boltons. Roos, Tywin, and Walder Frey, they are aware of the loyalty Rob has engendered amongst his men. And they're very wary of that. So what do they do? They're planning on killing all those loyalists. There's no way to de-loyalize them except to kill them. That's the only way to get rid of them. There's nothing they can do to make them turn on Rob Stark or on the Starks. There's nothing they can do to keep them from getting revenge other than to kill them first. The Red Wedding does not work unless Roos kills off a lot of Rob's troops before this battle or before this wedding. Eh, same difference, before this battle. Before this slaughter, that the soldiers are reduced to a manageable number so the rest of them can be killed here. So another sad little irony about the Red Wedding is one of the two people who could prove Bruce Bolton is lying about Duskendale, one of them's Robit Glover, who we've covered a lot, even though he's been on screen very little. He's, again, the guy that's crucial to Manderly rising for Stannis and arranging to go have Davos get Rickon. Robert Glover is aware of Roos's orders. He knows that Roos gave these false orders and said it was Rob who gave the orders. So Robert knows, or at least could piece it together, that Roos lied about, about Rob's orders. Arya also knows about Roos's orders, whether she would be able to fully make sense of them. All she'd have to do is remember them, but of course, that's a little too late. Now, of course, this comes back. By the way, we'll, we'll get into more detail on this in, in Tyrion's chapter when Tywin's talking about what's more honorable, killing a dozen men at dinner or thousands of men killed on the battle? Well, killing these men on the battlefield, thousands of men on the battlefield was part of the Red Wedding plant pre-planning. <laughs> so Tywin is not only being hypocritical because thousands of men were killed at the Red Wedding, but thousands of men were killed on a battlefield as part of setting up the Red Wedding. So it's a whopper of, of a bit of hypocrisy for multiple reasons. But more on Tywin's hypocrisy later. We're more concerned about Roos and Walder and their hypocrisy and evil. Yeah, so Roos has been in contact, clearly been in contact with Ramsay since the sacking of Winterfell because the finger skin belonging to Theon happens after the sacking of Winterfell. So Winterfell was sacked by the Boltons and Roos either knows Ramsay took the step or he ordered it and knows his orders were successfully carried out. A, a first-time reader can see Roos lying here. There's enough clues given that we've seen, readers have seen what Robit Glover and Arya have seen. It's pretty easy to miss, though, because there's just so much happening. 
But Rob does straight up tell Cat and Rob that his son fight off, helped fight off the Ironborn. That's easy to be led to believing that it's not Roos who's lying, though. That might not be a clue to readers because they can be led to think Ramsey is also lying to Roos, that even Roos is fooled. Hey, that's possible. Of course, we know it's not the, the truth, but a first-time reader can be forgiven for thinking that. And Roos, after all, he, he disavows Ramsey here. He's like, yeah, you know, probably just going to have to execute him because his crimes are too great. He's so nonchalant about it. So, you don't, it, it's definitely a good acting job. Well, Roos, Roos is good at acting, unlike some of these phrase. And Roos says, hey, I'm expecting new trueborn sons from Lady Walda. So, you know, no worries about that. He's not worried about Ramsey. So, it's all very just, so very nonchalant. There's a few other lies that Roos tells that a reader could catch that might lead you to figure this out. And things that aren't lies, like, when he goes hunting wolves. Uh, but still, most of us just didn't see it coming. The second time through, though, I imagine a lot of you all are just overwhelmed with all the things that you missed. They're all pointing to the same thing, but it's fun to see just how vast that list of clues is. In this chapter, Roos tells Rob what Rob should do with Theon. He says, yeah, execute him, but get something for it. With Balon dead, the Ironborn are going to fight each other, so get something for, from whoever comes out on top in exchange for executing Theon, because his claim is a threat. It's like, this is a perfect opportunity to profit. This is exactly what I was talking about. Conceptually speaking, Roos sniffs out the opportunity very clearly here. He says, ah, there's an opportunity for profit here, an opportunity for gain. He sees it very clearly. It's right at the top of his list. Catelyn and Rob don't see it at all. They don't get it. He brings up hostage exchange or hostages and Rob's first thought is that they would exchange him for something. Like, you're not suggesting that Theon gets set free for any reason, do you? And Rus is like, no, actually. I'm saying get paid for killing him by the new king of the Iron Islands. Roos is 100% right. It is clever. And as, as I've said before, as awful as Roos is, had Rob kept him close, his ruthfulness, ruthfulness? Ruthlessness. <laughs> I swear that was not on purpose. His his ruthlessness would have been useful because you know, it's like having a Varus around. It's at least you have someone that knows how the worst people think. Even if you don't take Roos's advice on the worst things to do, at least you have someone that knows how to think like Tywin. It's like, well, what would Tywin do? Well, let's ask Roos, right? Like that would be pretty helpful. That would be using the evil and the cunning of Roos in a non-evil way, keeping him under wrap, keeping him under control, not allowing him to be loose. Don't let the Roos loose, because look what he does when he's off to his own devices. He gets your army killed off because he knows you're losing. Now, if Roos had gotten the sense that the King of the North was winning, he wouldn't have been sacrificing troops. He would have been making plans to win battles and and profit by being one of the most powerful lords in this new kingdom that's forming. Roos was fine taking whatever side he could take as long as it profited him. So this is what Roos, what's funny is Roos is giving this advice about Theon, but it's really what he plans to do with Theon. He's saying, you could do this, you could do this, because this is what I'm planning on doing. So minus the part, he doesn't tell Rob about, hey, bring him south to coax the, Mo the Iron Man out of Moat Kalen, which is what Roos ends up doing. No, there's no battle at Moat Kalen so much as there is a, well, there's the use of intrigue. And that's another major difference in Roos and Rob here. These, these, the differences in how they think, the differences in how they sense opportunities, just as 
Ruth sees the same vulture, crow, wolf sensing of weakness amongst the Ironborn that he's similarly sensing in his own liege and Rob. He uses intrigue to get around Moat Kalin rather than Rob's first thought, which is to come up with this great battle plan. It's a dichotomy of style and it's a dichotomy of where their minds go when presented with problems. Roos would rather be clever and to get around it. If he doesn't have to spend men in dying, then that's better. And Rob is like, well, we'll do battle. We'll do this the, the, the straightforward way. Honestly, mo- oh, the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, I'm going to agree with Rob, but I, I kind of liked Roos's way of getting Mo Kalen better than Rob because it just, fewer innocents die that way. Even the, uh, the bad guys sometimes do have better plans. It's kind of like the thousand men at dinner thing, killing 12 men, except that it's true. <laughs> it's the Tywin is lying <laughs> when he says it. In a scene slightly reminiscent of George R. Martin's feast descriptions, Roos is extremely detailed with how he's deployed his men. He describes being attacked by Lannister forces on the way up here, which serves as another cover story for his loyalty. He's like, look at all this fighting that I did with the Lannisters. It's a really another way of tricking first-time readers. And second-time readers were unpacking his strategy here. We say, ah, no wonder. It's very clever. The reason I point out it's similar to the feast descriptions is that he names all the types of armies, who's in charge of them, what house they're loyal to. And the reason that's so important is, well, because if you break down the lists, well, let's have the quote first. Two-thirds of my strength was on the north side when the Lannisters attacked those still waiting to cross. Nori, Locke, and Burley men chiefly, with Sir Willis Manderley and his White Harbor Knights as rear guard. I was on the wrong side of the trident, powerless to help them. Sir Willis rallied our men as best he could, but Gregor Clegane attacked with heavy horse and drove them into the river. As many drowned as were cut down. More fled, and the rest were taken captive. So Nori, Locke, and Burley, those are clansmen and White Harbor men. And then, of course, Willis Manderley and his White Harbor Knights are more White Harbor men. Some are, those are some of the most loyal men to Rob and Winterfell. I mean, look at how the Manderleys are. And, of course, I don't need to tell you how loyal the Mountain clans are. Roos has neutralized his biggest foe in the north, White Harbor, by allowing the heir to White Harbor to fall into Lannister hands. Remember that Lord Manderley will pretend to execute Davos in order to win this very same Sir Willis's freedom. Before that, he had little choice but to kneel to Lord Bolton or risk Lord Tywin executing his son. So here we go again. Enormous leverage gained by precisely chosen hostages. We just talked about Theon and Theon again. Theon meaning at the beginning of the story as a hostage to Ned Stark. Now lords like Jason Malister and Edmure himself are going to surrender their castles rather than lose their sons or their other parts of their family. And can you blame them? Uh, no, I certainly don't. I'm not going to say, yeah, choose your son over your castle, man, definitely. When Wellis is freed thanks to the fake execution of Davos, only then does he start making moves to recover Rickon and support Stannis. So think about how similar that is to what Roos is talking about. Get concessions for the execution of Davos. It's like, well, if we're going to execute Davos, then I want my son back. And very similar concept. It's pretty cool how this all comes full circle. But first time reader, of course, you're not going to know about that. It hasn't happened yet. The Manderleys are also a great example of this 
technicality, this well-actually when it comes to hospitality laws. We'll see Wyman make a point of giving guest gifts to Jared, Simon, and Rhaegar Frey, which indicates that guest right is over. And then shortly after that, those three end up as Frey Pies. <laughs> Gross, but somehow satisfying. During the scene where Catelyn is watching Rob coax Greywing into the twins. It's interesting that she's noting that it's important that Greywind's consternation matters, but there's a little bit of interesting subtext that Greywind is speaking softly, or that Greywind is speaking so Rob is speaking softly to, to Greywind. Well, that would be quite a catch if Greywind was speaking softly. It's like, whoa, the wolf is talking. How did we miss that? So Rob is speaking softly to Greywind, which might mean that he's also skin changing, sort of, but it shows that you know, he's still talking to his wolf. So it's another little clue in the general realm of just how much skin changing is Rob doing with Grey Wind. I like that. It's a good little catch. It's interesting, too, to think about, the, about guest right. It's not automatically given, right? I talked about Black Walder and the technicality of Baird Steel, but Black Walder is not the lord of the twins. It's not guest right is not his to give. So that was maybe a flaw in, in my point about comparing it to Rob because Rob was acting Lord in that scene with Bran and Tyrion. So it had more meaning there. Still, it's interesting. And still as subtext and as a clue to what's going to happen, it's a big deal. So whether it technically gets Walder off the hook for guest right, I, I kind of doubt that. But it's an interesting point. Catelyn is so interesting in this chapter too because she, when they get their bread and salt, she thinks, now we should be safe. <laughs> I'm like, no. But then she also thinks about how having guards would be, would be good. So she isn't completely relaxed after that. She's still wary, but it's just, it's kind of sad to see her think that way. Be like, yeah, now we're safe. Newt Rock 44 says, if Vargo Hote says ruthless, do you have to ask him to clarify? <laughs> yes, yes. And Vargo is... I wonder if Vargo was thinking to himself, boy, that guy really was ruthless as he's dying to the the mountain. Stephanie, the peerless, points out, the leg of lamb Greywind is given is reminiscent of Theon's nightmare where Rob held a leg of lamb as a scepter. Ah, very good catch there, yeah. That certainly seems to be a Red Wedding vibe in Theon's dream there. Walder claims to have known five Lord Tullys, outliving the previous four. So if Edmure fathers a son on Roslyn, well, the plan would be for him to outlive Edmure as well. But of course, as I said before, the real heir for Riverrun. The line is, Lord Walder wants, wants his grandson to inherit Riverrun. Treegirl points out that, yeah, not through Edmure, though. Through Emmon. Emmon's his second son, and he wants his grandson through Emmon to inherit. But his grandson through Emmon already exists, right? Emmon's been, Emmon's an older man. Who is Emmon's oldest son? Cleos Frey. So Cleos is dead. So Cleos's son would inherit. Now, who is Emmon's wife? Jenna Lannister, Tywin's sister. The heir to Riverrun right now is Tywin Frey. Blech. And speaking of arrangements and hidden disappointments, uh, the Freys are disappointed that Jane isn't there. Uh, which is a reminder that they have just may have just killed her. Remember, uh, as I pointed out last time, Tywin had a deal with the Freys and Sybil Spicer had a deal with Tywin, but there was no deal between the Freys and, and the Spicers. So 
the phrase would be less wary or more wary of, of taking a chance on Jane having a kid. So just kill her and there's no chance of her having a kid. And Jamie is going to later talk about how even the slightest notion that Rob has a kid out there could cause problems. So killing Jane sooner rather than later is going to curb any chances of people talking about her having had a kid. But backing up to the five Tully, Lord Tullys that Walder claims to have known, those would, of course, be Hoster, Hoster's dad, whose name we don't know, and Ed Muir now. So that's three of them. And then before Hoster's dad, we would have uh, Lord Medgar and Lord Medgar's heir. And Lord Medgar is before the Sworn Sword, and then Medgar has since died. And in the Sworn Sword, we have Medgar, because he, uh, Medgar's heir, rather, who is a young boy. We wonder about Jigglebell a little more here. He's wearing that crown, like we said. It's kind of like Patchface's crown, perhaps like the one Crescent was made to wear in mockery. And, well, that's what Cat was wondering, if that crown was meant to be a mockery of Rob. And, and Jingle Bell has a king's name. His real name is Aegon. There's an Aemon Rivers in this chapter, too. There's a lot of, well, Targaryen-named phrase. There's a Rhaegar phrase, as we mentioned. There's, an a- There's another Aegon phrase. There's, he turned outlaw. And what a story could that be? If we knew anything about it, all we know is that there's an Aegon Frey who turned outlaw. Like, that's literally all we know. There's also a Magell Frey and an Aenys Frey. So, so many Targaryen names mixed in there. Plus, they, they just absconded with lots of other naming conventions. There's a two Robert Freys. Again, another Tywin Frey in addition to the one we just named. There's a Jamie Frey. There's a Cersei Frey. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's just, it's crazy. By the way, Nina points out that one of the Tywin Freys is a child of Raymond Frey, who is the one who kills Catelyn. The detail, the detail, it's overwhelming. Tree Girl points out that, yeah, we, it's, it's good that we looked at the, the phrase and their acting and how a lot of them kind of gave clues with their rigidity and their inability to hide their, uh, their emotions very well. The twins' maester is in this chapter talking to Catelyn, and he just betrays nothing. He's like a regular Oscar winner. He's totally ho-hum about everything. And when Catelyn goes looking for that maester, she encounters a couple of guys, including Lord uh, Lame Lothar. One of them that she, one, one she encounters is the Hayes, that, including Sir Donald Hay. And that's the guy who's going to let Sandor pass without recognizing him, despite the fact that Sandor has beaten him several times in tourney. Okay, we're ready to move on. It's time for Aria 10. Red Wedding Crashers, a.k.a. the one where the hound robs a farmer. Despite the title, they're late for the wedding itself, but hopeful to make it for the feast. Quote. The outriders came on them an hour from the Green Fork as the wain was slogging down a muddy road. The chapter is short, an appetizer for the big bloody feast that is the Red Wedding in the very next chapter. Fittingly, the food in this chapter, unlike George R. R. Martin's often grand food descriptions, is instead bland and or gross. In order to sneak into the feast, Sandor robs a farmer. As we know, this poor man is found later by the brother without banners, and they're able to get more information about what direction the Hound and Arya fled in. Of course, it doesn't lead to his any captures, but it's interesting to uh, keep the story nice and robust on all sides. But because of this chase, the brother here without banners does arrive in this area to find Catelyn's body in the river. And you know, same old story. Find a body in the river, 
resurrect it and make it your leader. Everyone's seen that happen. It's the oldest trope in the book, right? So they were heading to the twins anyway, though, the Brotherhood Without Banners, because they were going to try to get a ransom for Arya before Arya was stolen from them. They were less in a hurry, though. So Sandor kind of accidentally moved up their schedule. Like I said, accidentally, but it was extremely relevant because they got there right in time to find Lady Stoneheart's body. Well, Catelyn's body, soon to be Lady Stoneheart. There's a sneaky piece of backstory connective tissue here. Nice quote. Arya had thought of revealing herself to the first outriders they encountered, but she had always pictured gray-cloaked men with the direwolf on their breasts. She might have risked it even if they'd worn the Umber Giant or the Glover Fist, but she did not know this pitchfork knight or whom he served. The closest thing to a pitchfork she had ever seen at Winterfell was the trident in the hand of Lord Manderley's merman. Yeah, so as we just talked about at the end of Catelyn 6, that's Donal Hay, Sir Donal Hay. Someone Sandor has defeated many times in tourney and melee. This is a nod to the tourney at Harrenhal story. Howland Reed is accosted by three squires from houses Frey, Blunt, and Hay. Sir Donal could even be the same squire who accosted Howland Reed. Well, we don't know for sure, but that is the pitchfork knight so-called, that uh, House of the, the Knight of Laughing Tree defeated in the tournament. So this whole chapter is about a lot like something that's a recurring theme for Arya, seeing what's really there instead of what you want to see. This is a great catch by Nina. It starts right away with Donal. Donal barely glances at Sandor, even though Sandor's disguise is not really that much of a disguise. So, you know, one look at Sandor's face, and that's going to be it. But like Sandor says, society is the way it is, and he's looking like a farmer, and that's it. They're not going to give him two looks because he's beneath them so much. Arya herself, hoping to see familiar faces and looking really hard and, and wishing that she sees banners that she recognizes, it's good that she didn't reveal herself to any of these other people. And now who does Sandor tell Sir Donal that he's serving? They're like, who, you know, who sent you? And he says, Lady Went. And she is the until recently Lady of Harrenhal, Shella Went. The family who hosted the tourney at Harrenhal. The same host whose brother was one of the three knights at the Tower of Joy, Sir Oswell Went. According to Sir Barristan's memories, Lord Went announced the tourney at Harrenhal shortly after Sir Oswell paid him a visit. Obviously, Sir Oswell was close to Rhaegar, hence his presence at the Tower of Joy. And recall that Varys warned Mad King Aerys that the tourney was a front for many powerful lords to discuss a coup. Arya herself has some house went in her. Catelyn's mother was Lady Manissa Went, unknown relation to the others named here, but still from that family. Arya worries about encountering Lord Bolton again, and she's right to be worried. So they both note the terrible music, Sandor and Arya, which is the result of many of the musicians not being musicians at all, but crossbowmen. Remember, you know, it's a one-stringed instrument. It's not as, you know, doesn't, not as, you don't, doesn't take as much skill. Remember that the Ghost of High Heart dreamt of a terrible clangor as part of this. This is that bad music she was thinking of. After seeing unfamiliar sigils and a lot of banners too wet and dark to be discerned, she sees one she recognizes on a tent, House Smallwood, which... That always makes us a little sad. She thinks back to her time with Lady Smallwood, the one who gave her the, the acorn dress and called her pretty and told her to be brave. And yeah, hmm. 
Now, remember, too, the hound is wearing boiled leather and, and nail under his farmer's clothes, which is kind of a parallel to what the Frey men are doing. They're hiding their mail and, and armor under their wedding clothes as well. And of course, as I pointed out in Catelyn 6, the Lannister presence is noted. Quote, The music grew still louder as they approached the castle, but under that was a deeper, darker sound. The river, the swollen green fork, growling like a lion in its den. Yeah, notice how similar that is to, to the, the opening the, line. Yeah, to the Sussurus. Yeah, exactly, right? Except it, she says lion instead of beast. So it's kind of a buildup. I think if you say lion right there, that opening line, it's, it's maybe too suggestive. I think George was like, let's just call it a beast. But then here with Arya, as we're closer to the climax, the name lion is revealed. The music is where the killers are waiting, right? The music is the crossbowmen. So what's being suggested by this quote is that the sound is backed by the big, deep base of the river. And the lion, of course, the lion influence is backing this whole plot. It's very darkly beautiful, even though the music itself is not. There's this sadness from Arya that I'm sorry to make you read here, Shea. She's so close to being reunited with her family. This is one of the longest quotes we've grabbed in a while, but it's so good. Arya twisted and turned, trying to look everywhere at once, hoping for a glimpse of a direwolf badge, for a tent done up in gray and white, for a face she knew from Winterfell. All she saw were strangers. She stared at a man relieving himself in the reeds, but he wasn't alebelly. She saw a half-dressed girl burst from a tent laughing but the tent was pale blue, not gray like she thought at first. And the man who went running after her wore a tree cat on his doublet, not a wolf. Beneath a tree, four archers were slipping wax strings over the notchers, notches of their longbows, but they were not her father's archers. A maester crossed their path, but he was too young and thin to be Maester Lewin. Arya gazed up at the twins, their high tower windows glowing softly wherever a light was burning. Through the haze of rain, the castles looked spooky and mysterious, like something from one of Old Nan's tales, but they weren't Winterfell. Yeah, and most of these people she's naming are dead. Alebelly's dead, Lewin is dead, Old Nan is either dead or at the Dreadfort, which she might rather be dead. Poor Arya. She always gets so close and yet, so far, it's a recurring theme. We hope that one day, maybe the third time will be the charm for her, right? Subtle details here. As, as Sandor hacks off some of Arya's hair right before the Red Wedding. And that's a clue, right? It, this is the last time someone hacked Arya's hair off was right after Ned was executed. It's protecting her in both cases. But it's, it's, does, it's not necessarily framed that way. And it comes as a time where she's in dire straits. She's about to be captured by people who want her dead right after they've done horrible things to her family. And this haircut also is kind of like a, ties her more to Sandor a bit because she thinks about how in shaving her with his dagger, it was obviously a rush job. She's now, quote, bald on one side, which is also the case of Sandor because of his burns. It's also notable that Arya keeps describing the setting outside the fray walls as typical as an army camp, right? There's so much of this description is not wedding, doesn't have wedding vibes. Yeah, there's, there's colorful pavilions and barrack tents. 
These are soldier things. There's the clink and clatter of steel and wood, stringing of bows. It doesn't seem out of the ordinary. We've been through so many battle scenes. We've been seeing so many army camps. These are soldiers. Rob is on his way to battle. But if you look at it in a different light, it is like a setup for a battle now, which is what it turns out to be, even though it's so one-sided. Can I just say also, you were talking about hair and, you know, referencing the Red Wedding. Yeah. Obviously, I don't think it was mentioned, but it's explicitly part of the Red Wedding. Catelyn's hair being chopped off. Yeah, very true. Yeah, That's very true. Wor- well worth mentioning that. Danny sent a large quantity of wine from Astapor to the Second Sons when she was getting ready to attack Young Kai because she expected they would be too drunk to resist her attack. This is pretty similar to what's happened here. Catelyn notes that boy, there's not much food, but they sure aren't. They sure are being generous with the alcohol. <laughs> so yeah. Very little food provided for Rob's men, mostly just drink. And of course, packed in tightly. They're going to be inhibited space-wise and functionally because of the drunkenness. And it's extremely thorough, all this planning. And when it all spills forward, it's like, wow, this was so planned. We didn't see any of it. (laughs) Archmaester Rennie from Flick had a great catch. The last line of Arya 9 is, keep your mouth shut and do as I tell you, and maybe we'll even be in time for your uncle's bloody wedding. And the last line of this chapter is, it's your bloody brother I want. So the last line of two chapters in a row from Sandor, bloody wedding and bloody brother. Damn it. <laughs> That's a good one. All right. Catelyn 7, the one where people throw their book across the room, aka the actual red wedding. If that phrase is a little confusing to you. Uh, there are people, there are stories around the fandom going back to the, the time this book was published, back to 2000, 2001, when people literally did throw their book across the room. Apparently that still happens these days. Less though, because, you know, The Red Wedding is less of a surprise. It's out there. People are more aware of it. The TV show has really made it such a big deal, so well-known. A lot of people talk about things that will make them throw their book across the room. If it comes out. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's, it's built on that. It's like, <laughs> We've had time to think about what would make us throw our book across the room. <laughs> That's hilarious. This chapter defies analysis. So much of the first three books across most of the PVOVs are in part or fully designed to lead to this moment. George R. Moten wrote, wrote it last out of all the chapters in this book. I wrote this analysis last. We started it last of all the chapters for this week. It's the chapter that inspired... Dan and Dave, to make the TV show in the first place. It had an enormous ripple effect across media when it hit television. We, we can't truly distill this all into one reason, but if we could try, if we could somehow make an attempt to narrow down why the Red Wedding is such a phenomenon, it's the emotional impact it had. Nothing like this had ever really happened in a book I had ever read. Same goes for millions of others, and most of you listening. Same for all those people who saw it on TV for the first time instead of reading it for the first time. The impact of seeing it through Catelyn's POV intensifies this, as she is seeing the death of her own son, something immeasurably tragic. She's so overwhelmed that she doesn't even really notice that she's been shot by one of the crossbow bolts in the back. I think a lot of readers just gloss right over that because she barely notices it, right? So chat, those of you who are watching this live, weigh in. Let Ashea know what you thought your first time, your first takes of The Red Wedding. Were you one of those book throwers? Were you, did you just set it down and not pick it up again for a while? Did you just 
Did it become a mo- an insane page turner where you just had to see what happened next? I, there was a variety of reactions, and I'm curious to hear y'all's. It has overwhelming brutal sadness and tragedy mixed with shock and awe, yet somehow, despite this enormous surprise, a part of you realizes you should have seen it coming. It's a true testament to George R. R. Martin's absolute mastery over the written word that he managed to stun us all so thoroughly with something that looks obvious in retrospect. I mean, we've gone over so many different types of clues, both quantity and quality, and it's really something. It's given the impression, this this chapter, especially building off of Ned's execution, that anyone can die in a Game of Thrones, which is amazing because, in part because it's not actually true based on this chapter. You could say that it's true. Argue, arguably, it is true, but I don't think it's true based on this chapter because anyone can die, to me, is a sense of randomness, like, oh, anyone's at risk. The Red Wedding was extremely carefully and thoroughly planned in advance by both the phrase and George R. R. Martin himself. As we said, he planned it as part of the original conception of these books. Although originally it was planned to be book one when this is all going to be a trilogy. But the point is, George R. R. Martin's the gardener style, right? Gardener. This was not gardening. The Red Wedding was not one of those gardening moments. This was a set-in-stone milestone that he wanted to reach as part of his original plan. Tree Girl points out that, hey, maybe this is a good example of how the gardener style does work, how that does mean anyone can die, because George can change his mind. If the gardener style means George can change his plans on how the plot's going to go, that means characters that were thought to live might not. And hey, we're all aware of that. Anyone who's been following Valerita since the beginning knows of the concept of faux shadowing. We don't talk about faux shadowing nearly as much as we used to because there hasn't been as much as there used to. The faux shadowing is mostly present in book one. We may find ourselves with more faux shadowing in some of these very moments later on, though, when it's all said and done. We obviously can't know what's faux shadowing until we get the rest of what's faux shadowed. (laughs) Now, as we've been showing, and you've no doubt noticed on your own, just an overwhelming number of signs and foreshadowing and clues that lead to this. Call it what you want, but the second time really just pounds that idea in, doesn't it? And that's a fitting choice of words, I suppose, because, well, look how the chapter starts. The drums were pounding, pounding, pounding in her head with them. Very fitting. The chapter begins with pounding drums, building anticipation, And the fact that they just keep going. Even during the most climactic moments, George writes that every all the music stopped except for one drummer. So the drumming just keeps going. It's just intense and keeps the idea of battle, like marching, and reminds us that it's not really a feast or a wedding because pounding drums are not something you associate with weddings, right? I mean, I can't think of any weddings that just had a drumming the whole time. That doesn't sound right. In that vein, music is a big part of this chapter. Music, quote unquote, uh, sounds maybe is a better way to put it. But the theme of revenge inspired by the reigns of Castamere, and yeah, again, it is raining during this wedding, to the odd detail of the terrible musicians, to the long list of songs they attempt to play. And of course, the non-musician musicians If you really think about that, what else would explain so abysmally terrible musicians? I mean, 
maybe you're led to believe that Walter Frey is stinting on cost, but these aren't the kind of musicians a cheap man would pay for. These are just really, these aren't musicians at all. So it, it's another clue in retrospect. Olivar Frey's absence is another. Ryman's awkward reaction to being asked about Olivar is another one. Again, all the Freys had roles to play. Olivar's was just more of the unwitting role, as in just don't be there. Ditto Perwin. Ditto, ditto Alessander, who Catelyn thinks of as well. Among people who had active roles, like Lothar, Lame Lothar's overall planning of the event to various killing jobs, to Merit Frey being told to get the great John too drunk to function, which, by the way, we get to see that. Cat uh, sees Merit and Great John drinking. And, of course, the Great John functions quite well when the killing starts. And later, Merit gets the angry, you had one job treatment over that. But honestly, that was a really hard job, drinking the Great John under the table. I mean, I don't know if that's even possible. <laughs> but it's also interesting because it shows their strategy here. They specifically wanted him captured, not killed. Otherwise, like, Great John is... Other than Grey Wind, that's the guy you most account for. Like, that's the most dangerous person at the party. Make sure you take him out first. Logistically, keeping the Umbers at bay with their lord as hostage makes sense for the Boltons and Freys. They're not going to do too much with Grey John locked up. He's a popular lord, so his people won't, won't look kindly on an uncle or son or what have you, grandson, that takes action that leads to his execution. Symbolically, though, I also get it, too, because, hey, he's a giant in chains. Now the Great John is living up to the sigil of his house. Even he can see the irony there. So logistically and symbolically, I get it. But narratively, I'm curious if this is going to matter. Will the Great John do something important later or something cool or just something? The TV show tells us nothing. The actor left the show prematurely and they just wrote him out instead. So he's a curious footnote that's hard to get at because there's no, there's no reveals and he probably had some role plan that they just wrote out. There's another clue, Roose Bolton going off in search of a privy, though he's actually going off to change into his armor and probably unleash his men, or at least tell them to, that it's almost time, something like that. Catelyn notices that Rob doesn't join the betting ceremony and thinks that he should, that it'll be another slight. And that by itself is interesting. Let's talk about that for a minute. I think that's a good, uh, an interesting point here. The note that Catelyn also doesn't go, which you wonder about that, whether that was part of the plan, because they may have expected Catelyn to go as part of the betting, which meant they could have just grabbed her more easily, kept her out of the way of the crossbow bolts, and kept her as a hostage. If you recall, that was the plan. Tywin talks about, says that to Tyrion. He says, well, the plan was to capture Catelyn, but something must have gone wrong. Whatever. He doesn't, he doesn't care much, but he does call it a curiosity. You wonder, too, if Rob had gone back there, maybe they would have snatched him in the hall, killed him out. It's, it's not clear what their plan was, but you might, they may have waited for him to come back to the hall. But there's a, little, a couple little tidbits to go over there in, in terms of what the actual plan was and, and what they expected for where Rob would be. But ultimately, those are small details. The, the bottom line is the Red Wedding, it's an extreme culling of all the best. For the benefit of the worst, we have some of the best people, some of the best characters, some of the most loyal, upstanding, slaughtered for political gain of some of the worst characters. The ultimate sacrifice of young for old. We have so many young people killed for people who have 
been around a while. And well, they've had their fair share of life and glory. There's no power like the blood of a king, especially in this setting. And the power gained by Lord Walder through the death of this king, through his blood, is immense. We've also learned, however, that power is fleeting. Just as Lord Walder and Lord Bolton turned on King Rob in part because they sensed that weakness and saw that opportunity, they may find themselves similarly weakened and in turn become prey to the more powerful. Part of their plan is to make this decisive. If you kill enough of your enemies, they can't do anything about it. It's a classic, ruthless wielding of power, a classic, ruthless calculation. Well, we got to worry about revenge. Not if there's no one to get revenge on us. But revenge is a powerful motivator too. And if you'll allow the indulgence of this line, you truly can't leave even one wolf alive. It's worth in that too, because it's not just the wolves, it's the people who love them. The wolves are beloved by many. Not so the twins, nor the flayed men, nor even the lions. The thing is, if Rob had been tyrannical, murderous, dishonorable, the vultures would have circled much sooner. He would have painted that target on his back far earlier. He'd have been Viserys Targaryen or Aryan Brightflame or Mad King Ares. It's not hard to look at a man like that and guess with extreme confidence that he does not engender loyalty. People will leave such a man in droves if the threat to their own person and family is removed. That's what happened with Magor. A lot of people followed Magor until they had an opportunity to jump ship and they took it as quickly as they could. Which is why Bolton and Frey have a much tougher hill to climb. No one loves them. Many hate them, actually. Quite the opposite of the Starks. Not to mention Lady Stoneheart. Catelyn tore her own face as she died and just after killing poor Doom Jingle Bell. And that, hmm, she's not going to forget that either, even though the dead apparently lose some memories. She clearly hasn't lost that one. And she was thinking of her hair and how Ned loved it. It is Roose Bolton himself who kills Rob Stark, highly fitting as well, since he, in terms of this sacrifice metaphor and taking on what you've killed, he intends to wear Rob's skin in the metaphorical sense, taking the kingdom he's carved out for himself. Well, the northern half, he's got, he's got no interest in the Riverlands part of it. As Lady Dustin will suggest later in A Dance with Dragons to Theon, of all people, why not King Roose? So more literally, he intends to wear Rob's crown well, though not literally, actually, because he doesn't like Rob's actual crown. He wants Rob's kingdom, the top half. He'll probably make himself a new crown if he goes that route. Walder called this crown poor because it's made of bronze. And yeah, I think Roos would be a little more about the bling. Even in the midst of all this, or rather just before it begins, Roos Bolton still playing the power game, still staking out his power, still thinking ahead, reminding Lord Walder that he has two of his grandsons at the Dreadfort in the care of Ramsay, a man with a reputation for cruelty and torture. So it's easy to assume that all the conspirators against Rob were working together, uh, but of course not besides Sybil. But Roos and Walder clearly, this whole business about the big and little Walder being up there, that clearly came up in their uh, negotiations. Of all the so-called five kings, there is now but Joffrey and Stannis, and Joffrey is going to die in nine chapters, much to Melisandre's satisfaction, given her predictions and leeches. But the predictions of Rob's death started way before Melisandre. They started at the start. We pointed this out at the time, but it's been so long, let's recall it now. John 1, his first ever chapter, meaning in A Game of Thrones, when he speaks to Benjen during that feast at Winterfell, 
and they describe Rob's entire arc in simple terms. Daron Targaryen was only 14 when he conquered Dorne, John said. The young dragon was one of his heroes. A conquest that lasted a summer, his uncle pointed out. Your boy king lost 10,000 men taking the place and another 50 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war is its a game. He took another sip of wine. Also, he said, wiping his mouth, Daron Targaryen was only 18 when he died. Or have you forgotten that part? The numbers are all smaller for Rob, 16 instead of age 18. Fewer men killed, though still a staggering number. And hey, wolves are smaller than dragons. But Daron didn't have a real dragon, and Rob did have a real direwolf. So hmm, Rob gets to one-up him at least on one point. To be fair, Benjen's wrong about one thing there. Neither Rob nor Daron really truly treated war like a game, but they were very uh, much both naive about the political aspects of war, and their counselors didn't seem to be much help there. And they died very similarly. Daron's death came during a parlay under a peace banner. He and his king's guard, including Aemon the Dragon Knight, were attacked. Like Rob's sworn shields, they were too few to stop the attack on their king. Most died with him, but a few, like Aemon, were captured and held for ransom, also not unlike a few of Rob's men. Another parallel between Rob and Daron is in their deaths and, and loss of their actual crowns. Rob's crown is seized by the phrase, and they put it on so-called queen of whores until she's seized, until he's seized and hanged by the VWB, that is Sir Ryman. Ryman's the one who puts the crown on and the crown is going to be retaken by Lady Stoneheart. So she reclaims her son's crown and uh, is, is seen staring at it in one of her scenes. I feel, uh, we, we feel strongly that the Dornishmen still have Aegon's crown, or, which is Daron's crown. That would be Aegon the Conqueror's crown. So we might still see that crown come back. We might see none other than young Griff wearing that crown if, say, Illyrio has been holding on to it as another symbol of legitimacy, something that we've talked about a lot. But let's not get into that here. It is a bit off topic. Joe Buckley wonders if there's any more recognizable opening sentence than the drum for pounding, pounding, pounding in her head with them. Maybe not. It might be, you might say some other ones are up there tied. I mean, we should start back is pretty darn recognizable if you're going to if we're going to argue this point, <laughs> which we're not, but I'll just throw that one out there as so I'll say there's a few that are maybe just as tied. Just as just as recognizable, but more recognizable. I can't think of one that's more recognizable. So, a good catch by here by Nina is that also just how tightly packed all the men are into these tents. It's it's kind of like fish in a barrel appropriately with with tullies, but you know, uh, wolves in a barrel? I don't know. But that's uh, just another little clue. It doesn't seem like it's, it's framed so well because they're talking about, well, there's so many men. We don't have room for everybody. You know, you're going to have to pile in under these tents and all that. But so it's very, very cleverly done. You know, also points out the wounded dog who shakes ale and hair over three frays. That's kind of a nod to the next chapter because Sandor is going to kill three frays or at least three fray riders. They may not all be House Frey members. One of them is for sure. Uh, but the other two are either cousins or it's not clear exactly. Still, and, it, and it, one of them dies in a foot of water. And this, of course, shaking uh, ale and water and hair all over them is kind of a, yeah, it's kind of a nod to that, I suppose. No coincidence to be that uh, Nina notes there's no coincidence in the last meal served at the wedding. Juicy pink lamb. Oh, lamb's led to the slaughter. Yep. Bah. 
Another nice uh, historical catch here. Great John Umber is the one carrying Rosalind to her bedding, which is uh, a nod maybe to the Mystery Night, or rather the Mystery Night, it would be a nod to this because it came after, where Dunk carries Lord Butterwell's fray bride to her bedding. <laughs> Not only is the Great John personally huge, but his sigil is the Roaring Giant. So, and And Damon calls Dunk the Giant when he's saying this is the guy who should carry Lady Frey to her bed. Part of that is just sensible. Of course, you're, you need to carry a person. Yeah, nominate the largest person who are standing there. And in both cases, it's a, someone particularly large, Duncan the Tall and the Great John. There's another bit of perhaps subtext to Walder's motivation here. And earlier, way back, if we talk about when Lord and Lady there was discussions of fostering between uh, the Aarons and the twins. There's that quote about where Walder is complaining. This is back in a Game of Thrones where he says, what good are apologies? What good are regrets? And because they had a deal. Remember, he was supposed to have a marriage arrangement there. And then they changed it. It says, the quote was, and when Lord Lord Aaron said the child was going to Dragonstone to foster with Stannis Baratheon, she stormed off without a word of regrets, and all the hand could give me was apologies. What good are apologies, I ask you? So yeah, it's another thing. Walder has been through this before. Now, again, it does not excuse anything. Obviously, I'm not defending him, let's be clear. But it's interesting to see that this is something that, that's been a big part of Walder's life, is his broken marriage promises. It's not his first rodeo, and it's something that bothers him a lot. So it's an interesting part of his personality. It's kind of like going, thinking about how so much of Tywin's motivations are not being like his father and people being like his father bothering him and his father being an embarrassment. It's, it's a little bit like that, except without the father part for, for Lord Walder. His father isn't really involved in this. Neither is Roos's. We don't know Roos's dad at all, but you wonder, uh, doubt he was a, a very good man. Nina's got a nice uh, collection, a little rundown of everyone who dies and how. Let's do that real quick. Rob Stark, of course, killed by Roos and also hit by crossbow bolts. Catelyn Stark, killed by Raymond Frey. Wendell Manderly, crossbow bolted through the mouth. Daisy Mormont, killed by Ryman Frey with a long axe. Robin Flint, stabbed to death by a number of Freys. Lucas Blackwood, killed by Hostine Frey. Small John Umber, a Bolton or Car Stark man, cuts his head off. Donald Locke and Owen Nori, killed by crossbow bolts. Reynold Westerling, probably killed by crossbow bolts. He's the one that loses Grey Wind and then jumps over the wall into the river, but he's already got a crossbow bolt in his gut and another in his chest. This is not the TV show, so a crossbow bolt in the gut is probably death. Uh, <laughs> of course, I'm referring to Arya. There's a member of House Vance that's killed. Some Brackens are killed there because Jonas Bracken later says that some of his blood were killed there. He doesn't say who. Flint, Serwin, Tallheart, Slate, Dustin. Men are all killed here. Barbary Dustin points that out, that they all had men with the young wolf. So this is part of the, the flaw in their plan here is they're, they're expecting to, to curb anyone's ability to, to get revenge. But there's a lot of men from a lot of these families that weren't touched and they're all aware of what happened. You can't conceal this story from them. Roger Wiswell adds the Riswells to Lady Dustin's list. Yeah, because when Lady Dustin's complaining about people who were killed at the Red Wedding, Roger Riswell says, Riswell men were killed there too. So almost every Northern house has a, some sort of grudge against Roose Bolton for this. And, and of course, the phrase too. 
and House Piper as well. We already mentioned Mark Piper's uh, son, I believe, was taken captive. Or is it Mark Piper himself? I forget. Anyway, a Piper, an important Piper is taken captive. And a Piper Bowman is the one that, that Arya and Sandor encounter later, the one that they find who's dying that they give the gift of mercy to. There are a few fray casualties. Sir Benfrey dies. He's mentioned briefly, and we don't know what kills him, but he dies. Of course, Titos Frey is killed by Sandor. Garth Goodbrook is killed. He's a brother-in-law of the Freys. That's probably a Sandor death. And then, of course, Aegon Jinglebell is killed by Catelyn. And, of course, some, some generic number of soldiers, half a hundred men killed by fighting uh, amongst the general soldiery. All right, let's go through a, a grouping of, of takes from people in the chat here. Let's, let's, let's all band together and, and uh, cry about the Red Wedding for a minute here and read everyone's takes. Dom Tarcaglia says, With me, I more or less spiked it than throwing it across the room. I was so grumpy after I read The Red Wedding. My brother, who I lived with at the time, wanted to cheer me up, so he put on a funny movie. It was Office Space. I left the room when I heard the name Michael Bolton. <laughs> Scott Wartman says, I have never thrown a book. I was excited and surprised. I had no one to talk to about with it, which is how I found you guys at History of Restaurants. Oh. I love, I was excited. Yeah, because <laughs> he was just like, wow, because it was just such an interesting plot line. Yeah, it is exciting. Line. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, Jamie McKenna says, I saw it on TV first and threw my remote across the room. Ah, same difference. I then sat there while the credits rolled in complete and utter shock. Just sat there. By the way, that remote did not survive. <laughs> Ridiculous Ed Tollett says, it was difficult to read through the tears. Blurry words suck. Wow. Yeah. Next Tree says, I was in denial and then burst into tears. X Factor 04 says, I was stunned. I just sat there jaw dropped. Emma Smith says, Total numbness, to be honest. I was there for my cousin's first watch, and he stood up and screamed and then yelled at me for getting him into the show. <laughs> Natalie Smith, no, 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 no. And then put the book down and stare blankly unmoving for a long, long time. Everett Cooper, I felt like I wanted to vomit. Jaded Redhead, ugly clarring so much that I was about to barf. Kaylee Targaryen, I openly wept but continued reading. Tubbs 1971, I saw it on the show first. I was shook for a week at least. Jaw opened, shook. Prince of Sunsphere, Sunsphere rather, I put it down at the end of the chapter, thought it over, then read it again. I didn't feel real. It, 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 didn't, it didn't feel real like, was I hallucinating? Was this a dream sequence? Yeah. I, I love to get all these reactions from you guys. A lot of regulars and people who usually don't necessarily uh, pipe in were giving their opinions, which is great. More opinions can be found in our discussion groups. Of course, we couldn't put them all here. People were describing their takes on Discord, on Slack, Facebook. And, and Flick as all our usual spots. And wow, yeah. Me, well, it taught me to be forever wary. Whenever I'm reading a story, I'm, I'm permanently more aware now. I think it just opened my eyes to me just, I'm, I'm, I'm too casual a reader. I'm not paying enough attention. If I missed all these things coming, it must mean I'm not aggressive enough with my focus. <laughs> it must mean I'm just too casual a reader. And well, here we are now, many years later. I'm no longer a casual reader. No one, no one could call me that these days. But I do think this Red Wedding is a big reason of why. So back up to what I said at the beginning of this chapter about how it's the emotional impact is what really drives people. Given all these reactions from y'all, I think, I think I'm right. That that's probably the biggest part of it. The thing that everybody remembers their reaction. Everybody remembers it deeply. They may still feel it. 
you may thinking about it, bringing these back, a lot of you guys are probably feeling the way you felt when that was. Even though we're talking, when was the Red Wedding on TV? 2014? I think it was 2014. That was six years ago. For me, reading the book, it was 19 years ago. <laughs> and that would be the same for a few of y'all, at least, that would have read it back then as well, or in between. And It was 2013. 2013, wow. Yes. Oh, yeah, season three, of course. Yeah. 11, 12, 13. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, man, a couple other takes. Archmaester Emma says she still shivers when hearing Reigns of Castamere. Natalie Smith says, last year I watched it with my partner and he was fine. And that's when I knew we were not meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say that one. That's a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, like you have no reaction to this? Are you kidding me? Yeah, like, yeah I don't That's a pretty good you. episode, I guess. <laughs> a little extra bloody, you know. <laughs> eh, who cares? Stefan B. points out a detail that's really nice here, which is that the wedding party aspect is really, it's sold really well, meaning that it, it's got that feel, how there's like raucous partiers over in one corner, people quietly whispering in another corner, people passed out drunk over here. One guy, you know, some people are just still like, eating constantly, just a variety, a, a pastiche of human interactions. And that's a really great little detail. It's hard to look for things like that because there's so many big details. So many, our eyes are drawn to what we missed in terms of clues. And that's a clue. The wedding party being, it's a clue in terms of the writing style. George, it's, it's, it tells us how George puts us at ease. It's a trick of comfort to show us, hey, look, it's a normal wedding. And it's a subconscious trick. So it's another thing that just shows us the skill that went into this moment, into this writing that, that wields over us all. It's really, man, what a masterpiece. It's, it's, what a way to get to evoke a reaction. What a way to evoke emotion. Another quote that's very uh, double entendre, slight, uh, meaning uh, ironic. Stephanie the Peerless points out the quote, a few more hours and the worst will be over. <laughs> yep. Yep, that's true. The worst was over after a few more hours there. Something to think about going forward with Lady Stoneheart. One of the recurring themes we're going to wonder about her is, and with other resurrected beings, is are the thoughts they had near the end, are the, is that held onto? Is that a big part of what drives them in death? Is, the, is their last, the last things they were doing or thinking or feeling when they were killed? Well, in addition to her great amounts of grief, which barely needs explaining. We know that Stoneheart was feeling that. But the other thing she was doing right there at the end was trying to kill Lord Walder. She kills Aegon Jinglebell instead because she's unable to get far enough to get to Lord Walder. So she just kills the next closest Frey she finds. But that's important. The last thing she was doing was trying to kill Frey's. It's the first thing she starts doing when she's resurrected. We got through it. But we have Aftermath. Plenty of aftermath. Aria 11. The gang fights Frey Marriage, a.k.a. the one where George is mean to us. At 10 minutes, 26 seconds, this is maybe the shortest chapter in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Definitely the shortest in this book and definitely the shortest we've had to this point. Were you fooled by him knocking her out? That's something else for you guys to chat about in the comments section and the live chat while we start this chapter. The opening quote is, The feast tents were behind them now. So much of the importance of this chapter is to show the scale of the destruction of the Red Wedding, seeing 
how many soldiers are killed. Inside with Catelyn, we get to see the personal stuff, seeing her people she knows, her son and relatives and friends and people she's been on campaign with. But Arya's outside seeing the soldiers go to work and slaughter each other and the fires and the tents and all this stuff that's going on outside the twins, whereas Catelyn is our viewpoint indoors. And it's interesting, too, to see just how, again, how well prepared this is. They're so ready. They're heavily armored and armored. Plate mail is seen on a lot of frays, which is expensive stuff, you know. They're taking no chances. Even though these are drunk, unarmed guys, they're coming out there in full plate mail with their big axes and torches and the tents. Joe points out the tents appear to have some, maybe have oiled, the the material is oiled, things like that. It catches fire so fast. So, woof. The ghost of High Heart's dream of a wolf howling sadly in the rain is fulfilled here. Quotes. Somewhere far off, she heard a wolf howling. It wasn't very loud compared to the camp noise and the music and the low, ominous growl of the river running wild, but she heard it all the same. Only, maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Arya like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. So definitely skin changer vibes between these two chapters. There's just, maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. That's very straightforward if you stop and think about it, or even if you don't. I mean, you can catch that pretty straightforwardly. Uh, pairing that with with Rob and the notion that maybe Rob Greywind and Rob had a, a merging there at the end. He tried to flee into Greywind's body maybe as he was dying or was sensing Greywind's suffering and vi- Greywind suffering his. There's a lot of theories and bloggings and podcasts that have talked about what happened in Rob's death moment. Something that we'll maybe get more insight into later as we learn more about what happens when someone dies and has a second life. We, we've certainly learned some about it, but but pretty much everything we've learned about second life to this point, we've already discussed. We jumped ahead on that with Veramir because we wanted to talk about it uh, when Veramir was first introduced and, and looking at things from his point of view as he looked at John, etc. Now, even if Nymeria wasn't here, which clearly she wasn't, she may have been feeling what Nymeria was feeling. If in other words, it may not have been directly from Grey Wind. The, the wolves seem more connected to each other than they maybe are to their skin changer family, the Starks. And so maybe what's happened here is Nymeria sensed Grey Wind's anguish and Arya felt that uh, because her connection to Nymeria is certainly much stronger than her connection to Grey Wind. But Arya is a powerful enough skin changer that it could be Grey Wind directly. Of course, we've just had this point very recently with Bran and John and John seeing Summer and Bran going into Summer to help John. And so this this skin changer stuff is really becoming more and more important around here, but it's kind of masked by all this grand tragedy and epic scale of the Red Wedding. Arya recognizes the reigns of Castamere and we have some really darkly beautiful passages of action interspersed with verses from the song. I grabbed a chunk of it for a shade to read here. And who are you, the proud lord said, that I must bow so low? The fray riders were struggling through the mud and reeds, but some of them had seen the wane. She watched as three riders left the main column, pounding through the shallows. 
Only a cat of a different coat. That's all the truth I know. Clegane cut Stranger loose with a single slash of his sword and leapt onto his back. The courser knew what was wanted of him. He pricked up his ears and wheeled toward the charging destriers. In a coat of gold or a coat of red, a lion still has claws. And mine are long and sharp, my lord, as long and sharp as yours. Arya had prayed a hundred, hundred times for the hound to die. But now there was a rock in her hand, slimy with mud, and she didn't even remember picking it up. Who do I throw it at? She senses these frays are not her friends, and she's right. So stick with Sandor. At least he's not trying to kill you. At least he's sort of trying to deliver you to your family. That's a much better boat to be on than the phrase who would might just kill you. Or if not, they would forcibly marry you to somebody. Catapults are flinging fire. Armored riders with torches are everywhere killing and burning the tents. It is chaos, but controlled chaos. The man comes for her and gets Sandor's axe in the back of his head, setting up the final moment when George aims to fool us with the same axe in the back of her head with much different intent. She thinks of Micah just, come on, George, wasn't it? Isn't this enough without Micah being thrown in there? But of course, it's all a trick. She's no Micah, and Sandor has no reason to kill her like he did have to kill Micah. She's Arya. She's important. And yeah, this is, this is a lot like that trick with the hair cutting. When Arya was with Yorin, there's that fake out moment as well when he pulls the knife out and starts cutting her hair and the chapter ends and you don't know what he's doing. It's kind of ambiguous. It looks like he might be hurting or even killing her, but it's just a haircut. And that's not unlike what Sandor gives Arya in her last chapter. And in both of those cases, Arya's crying. So there's a lot of connected uh, connectivity between Arya almost getting to her father and instead seeing him get killed and then almost getting to her mother and brother and not seeing them get killed, but close enough. And in both cases, her hair gets cut. In both cases, she runs off with someone that's kind of necessary to run off with, either Yoran or Sandor. And in both cases, she's crying. Me too. Yeah, for real. I'm also crying. Yeah. There's so much... uh, more about predicting the devastation. You know, she sees mail, she sees helms. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, why are all these people like soldiers? It's it's just, hey, men in wearing armor. That's such a normal thing. These are soldiers. It's it's continuing some of the same stuff we saw back in Catelyn's chapter where it's described as just people going about their business, but there's an awful lot of it dealing with armor and weapons and preparing for battle. So, in a, yeah, in addition to all these details we covered earlier on, like the the tents turning out to be oiled. Also, they're so easily collapsible. Imagine what that's like. Like, not they'll not think about it too much, but just a tent coming down on top of you. It's so heavy because it's also wet, but it's it's burning because of the oil, and you're trapped under it. It's a lot like the Battle of Blackwater in some ways. You've got like the the water is, is weighing you down. People are trying to kill you, and you're burning. And somehow, this burning is happening amidst a drenching and everyone around you is suffering the same way. It's like they're, it's like being on a capsized ship in the Blackwater. It's like what Davos was going through, except that Davos had a way out. And these guys do not. It's, 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 it's like that scene, but with sharks in the water with them. 
armored sharks. It reminds me of Quentin at Astapor. If you're one of the Freys here, just some young Frey soldier ordered to just slaughter these helpless men, you don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're getting into. You didn't know the plan fully speaking, probably. You may have figured out parts of it. But yeah, Quentin at Astapor was just killing enemy soldiers who were barely soldiers. They were crying. They were curled up. They were his age. It's the same kind of thing. We just don't have the perspective of any of those boots on the ground type soldiers because there's just so much else going on. The emotional connection to the characters we know is enough. We don't get this angle from regular the regular soldiery, but it's got to be intense regardless of what side you're, even the, the winning side, it's probably traumatic like it was for Quentin. Arya is almost like a squire here for Sandor. You know, he's like, get my helm out of the bag, of, out of the barrel of apples or whatever, wherever it was hidden. And Joe points out it's kind of like a theme of an old warrior coming out of retirement, you know, pulling off his, his farmer's clothes and going back to his old self ready to fight. I like that fight too. It's a quick and, quick and brutal. And uh, Sandor, I don't know there's anyone we see fight more often than Sandor. He may have the most battle scenes. Nina points out how incredibly sad it is that Arya, while crying, doesn't admit to herself that she's crying. She's just thinking that her face is wet because of the rain. And she's like, no, it's just the rain. She's in denial about her own tears, which is just so sad because for so many reasons, but it's like, go ahead and be sad, Arya. You can be, you don't have to deny that this is a really sad thing. I mean, this is incredibly sad. You are, you should allow yourself that but she doesn't have time to be sad she can't allow herself to be sad because she's got to get the hell out of there and of course as we see so much of this chapter is an example of the careful plotting and planning of not just the phrase but like i said george r martin himself but also lord tywin and of course that's where we're going next Tyrion six the gang hears the news aka the one where joffrey gets sent to bed you can't have a big event like the Red Wedding without reactions. I mean, we just got to have all of ours, and it wasn't even first reactions. Even we had to have that. George R. R. Martin scrapped the five-year gap in large part because he didn't think he could do the reaction to Oberyn's death in flashbacks. And quite frankly, if you can't skip past Oberyn's death, you can't skip past anything like this, for damn sure. It makes sense that this is the first place to hear the news, though, back at King's Landing as Walder Frey surely informed Tywin by letter as soon as the deed was done. I mean, we know he informed him by letter. My point is that he probably wrote that letter, like, right away. So this scene, Tyrion 6, probably only two to three days at most after the Red Wedding. I mean, Bird wouldn't take that long to get from the twins to the Red Keep. Dark wings, dark words has never been truer. And, well, here's the opening line. They supped alone, as they did so often. And they're truly alone when they're alone, aren't they? Sansa and Tyrion are really just in their own little worlds, forced to be alone, but not really together. They'd probably be more comfortable dining apart. It's a hugely ironic contrast. Nina writes, the, the Red Wedding saw Rob and his guests at a crowded wedding feast. So many packed in, even the, whether the soldiers or the nobility, with almost everyone having a good time before the slaughter began. Catelyn and Rosalind are some exceptions there. But even Edmure was having a good time because of Rosalind. This chapter opens with Sansa and Tyrion alone in silence, not having a happy marriage, not having a big feast, not surrounded by friends and family. 
This is the so-called victorious Lannister side of things. This is the work of Tywin Lannister. This is the, the winning, the War of the Five Kings. This is what victory looks like. Complete and total absence of happiness or joy or positive outlook. It's just dismal. Tywin's own, or Tyrion's own pride flares up about the Red Wedding. Of all things, he's annoyed that he wasn't included in the planning and wants to know if Cersei was. Well, she wasn't either. He's just so used to being slighted by his family that he quite often sees slights where they don't exist. And seriously, Tyrion, I mean, think that through. You wanted to be included in that, really? He's out here thinking how he's not looking forward to having to tell Sansa what happened to her family and how his family had everything to do with it. Wouldn't that just be a lot worse if you were in on it? <laughs> Wouldn't that be worse for Sansa? If, oh, yeah, by the way, wife, I was part of it. One of the messages George uses to keep us from noticing some of Tyrion's darker tendencies is, well, the rest of his family. He's just so much better by comparison than Tywin and Cersei and uh, less so Jamie. Jamie's improving so much, but definitely Joffrey. There's debating in this chapter whether Joffrey is more like Robert II or Aerys III, which is really just a lose-lose debate. <laughs> the matter's like, yeah, I won that debate. That's right. And, and Joffrey demands Rob's head, even though he knows it's already been cut off. He's like, I want to serve it to Sansa. Uh, he, he, this is similar to what he said back in Sansa 6, A Game of Thrones. You haven't said what you mean to give me for my name day. Maybe I should give you something instead. Would you like that? If it please you, my lord, Sansa said. When he smiled, she knew he was mocking her. Your brother is a traitor too, you know. He turned Septimordain's head back around. I remember your brother from Winterfell. My dog called him the Lord of the Wooden Sword. Didn't you, dog? Did I? The hound replied. I don't recall. Joffrey gave a petulant shrug. Your brother defeated my Uncle Jamie. My mother says it was treachery and deceit. She wept when she heard. Women are all weak, even her, though she pretends she isn't. She says we need to stay in King's Landing in case my other uncles attack. But I don't care. After my name day feast, I'm going to raise a host and kill your brother myself. That's what I'll give you, Lady Sansa, your brother's head. Hey, goodness. Only nine more chapters until he's gone. <laughs> And no one wants to seem to take responsibility for Joffrey, not even Cersei. To be fair, Robert was a horrible father. Here's another quote. He would have beat him if I'd allowed it. That brute you made me marry once hit the boy so hard, he knocked out two of his baby teeth over some mischief with a cat. There's really no way around this. Imagine how strong Robert was when Joff was just a few years old, like when he had his baby teeth. Robert was monstrously strong, and it sounds like that was a full... Full force, full strength punch or slap or open-handed, whatever. It's really bad. It's not everything, though. Like father, like daughter. Cersei immediately throws Robert under the bus for teaching Joffrey that a strong king acts boldly. But that might have been what Cersei taught him. I mean, yeah, it does kind of sound like something Robert would say, but it also sounds like something Cersei would say. And Tywin is uh, planning to throw... Arm, dead Armory Lorch under the bus to satisfy Oberyn Martell. This is just, this is what they've learned from Tywin. Tywin is a master of blaming other people and, and Cersei is, is pretty good at that too. Now here's the thing. 
as much as we want to blame Robert for some of Joffrey's upbringing, and that's correct to do, something was up with Joffrey. Cersei makes it sound like this was the only time Robert hit him. And once, and again, like I said, once is a lot, especially given how strong Robert is. But there may have been other times that didn't leave a mark. You know, Robert may have hit Joffrey more lightly and that Cersei wouldn't have known about it. But this quote-unquote mischief with the cat that Cersei's referring to, Joffrey cut open a cat to get kittens. If that was the first time Robert hit Joffrey, then you can't blame being beaten on Joffrey's psychopathic animal treatment. That came from somewhere else. It might have been, it might have even been inborn, which is very, very rare. Usually that kind of behavior comes from being abused. And Joffrey was abused, just maybe not as much physically as we thought. Verbally, yeah, yeah. Left alone, not fathered, not parented properly, absolutely. In terms of the, who's he more like, Aries or Robert? Aries. <laughs> when, when you did your research on that, was there any information on, you know, incest? Oh, whether uh, incest could create that? Yeah, it could mm, just create you know, I don't know. mental health. You hear about like certain other issues that it could cause. That's a good point, but I don't think mental health. I don't think there's enough data on incest. Yeah. Uh, Makes modern sense. incest, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. But yeah, I guess good in the thing. past incest you might have been able to see that you know, these rulers who, you know, married incestuously, they had some pretty crazy kids or something. It makes sense. I mean, if you're going to like incest creates weakened physical traits, that's going to obviously happen to the brain as well. Like your whole body is is, is weaker or, or, or has potential for that anyway. So yeah, that's a good point, actually. I didn't think of that. In fact, you could argue that Joffrey's even worse than Ares at a relative age. Certainly, Ares wasn't as bad at Joff's age. In fact, Ares was pretty good at Joffrey's age. He was considered promising. He hadn't started burning people or, you know, treating people terribly. He wasn't anything like this when he was a kid. And Ares even has some excuses like trauma and a slow mental decline where Joff, eh, Joff might have some trauma, but it's nothing like Summer Hall and <laughs> things like that. Now, during the infamous Tywin versus Joffrey scene that results in Joffrey getting his own betting ceremony, hey, a little parallel there. <laughs> The run on dream wine continues. Lots of dream wine in these last batch of several chapters. Thank you for that wisdom, your grace, Lord Tywin said, with a courtesy so cold it was like to freeze their ears off. Sir Kevin, I can see the king is tired. Please see him safely back to his bedchamber. Pycelle, perhaps some gentle potion to help his grace sleep restfully? Dream wine, my lord? Despite being so young, it's amazing. Joffrey is so terrible that I even cheer Tywin in this in this scene. <laughs> I've, I've probably not care, criticized any anyone more than Tywin during Valar Reredus. Uh, so with Joff dreamwined and bedded, Tywin does that thing he does where he predicts how the different lords will behave in response to something. In this case, the Red Wedding. He's usually very good at it, though we certainly pointed out how he was not good at it uh, when he tried to predict Rob Stark's behavior. In this case, though, he seems to absolutely nail it. River Run remains, but so long as Walder Frey holds Edmure Tully hostage, the Blackfish dare not mount a threat. Jason Malister and Tidos Blackwood will fight on for honor's sake, but the Freys can keep the Malisters penned up at Seaguard, and with the right inducement, Jono's Bracken can be persuaded to change his allegiance and attack the Blackwoods. In the end, they will bend the knee, yes, 
I mean to offer generous terms. Any castle that yields to us will be spared, save one. Harrenhal, said Tyrion, who knew his sire. The realm is best rid of these brave companions. I have commanded Ser Gregor to put the castle to the sword. The last one happens, of course. It's infuriating how casually Tywin speaks about eliminating the brave companions and, and says the realm is best rid of them. He's the one who brought them to the realm. <laughs> this is not an external threat that some that invaded the realm of their own accord or someone else brought them to inflict harm on the realm. He did it himself. Uh, so as far as the other houses he names and their disposition, the Brackens are indeed persuaded to attack the Blackwoods. That does happen. Jamie goes there in Advance with Dragons to resolve that siege after resolving the also-mentioned situation at Riverrun, which also becomes a siege. The Freys do indeed pen up the Malisters by capturing Lord Jason's heir, Sir Patrick, who was one of those few, very, very few designated as capture rather than kill at the Red Wedding. Note, for example, that Lucas Blackwood was slain, for example, and had he not been slain, perhaps this would have been one of those where they used Lord uh, used him as a hostage to make Lord Blackwood bend the knee earlier. But Lucas is not the heir, and maybe that's the difference, but I think it still would have worked. I doubt Lord Blackwood would have allowed his son to be executed. Still, Tywin tries so hard to absolve himself of responsibility that he won't even accept the word plotting. He's so trying so hard to remove himself from any of this that he's like, I don't like the word plotting, Tyrion. I mislike that word. Like, what? Plotting isn't accurate? Are you serious? This brings us to one of the biggest parts of the chapter. How many times have I said on this show that Tywin breaks traditions when it suits him? And how many times have I called him hypocritical? These two concepts are never more true than here in this chapter, most likely. We, his incredible ability to absolve himself of responsibility, it's just incredible. The emotional supernova that is the Red Wedding. We just got through talking about how, how powerful it is, the impact. But it's not just an impact for us readers. It's that powerful for in-world characters, even ones who weren't there. It's, a, it's an incredible, never-before-happened type event. So it's not just hypocrisy on Tywin's, on Tywin's part here. It's the height of his incredible inability to operate on a human level. He sees all of this. These are pieces on the board. He knows how they think. He knows how they move. But he does not know how they feel and or he does not care. He should, though, because it's what's going to kill him. Powerful people who want him dead so badly, they're willing to go to extremely great lengths to do so. Tyrion will risk his own escape to confront his father. Oberyn will voluntarily fight the mountain to get at Tywin, though to be fair, he wants the mountain also. It's kind of a two-for-one special. How could he pass on that? He's the Red Viper. So Talk of the Red Wedding is paired here with the Sack of King's Landing, a conceptually similar event in reverse, I suppose. Tywin was invited in and slaughtered his host instead of the other way around. Speaking of slaughtering hosts, I mean the other kind of host, meaning army. There is this line that we've talked about a lot, and now we're finally coming to it. Explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. When Tyrion had no reply to that, his father continued. That's because in essence, that line is true. It is more noble to kill the dozen at dinner than 10,000 in battle. That's a fair point. But that's not what happened. <laughs> Tyrion, if Tyrion knew the whole story, he'd be like, 
wait, you did kill 10,000, or they did kill 10,000 men at dinner. And of course, given what we talked about building up to this, how having Rob's army engineered to, to be lose so many thousands of men by intentionally strategically bad advice is part of this. Yeah, 10,000 men were killed at battle and at dinner. So, whew, yeah. And of course, why not? While we're talking about brutal Tywin-related events, we, we can't not bring up the reigns of Castamere, right? Yeah, of course. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's not Tywin killing the family. That's him drowning a whole household. Yeah, it's more the, yeah, the family and their servants and some soldiers and just people that were there. terrible way to die. Yeah. Also, it's, just like, not, yeah, very terrible way to die. Yeah, really, really bad. So the hypocrisy is, is, is let me count the ways in which Tywin is hypocritical. <laughs> Joe Buckley says, I'd imagine the vast majority of readers, especially first-timers, would have had to put the book down for at least a little while after all that, meaning The Red Wedding, and, I, and as we just saw, Joe is right about that. But still, this is a huge change from whatever comes. I mean, no matter what follows the Red Wedding, the pacing is going to feel differently. It's got a, you might expect to see like a Daenerys chapter or a Sam chapter here, something that's really far removed. But no, instead of that, we, we get reactions from other characters, just like people, just like readers are processing their reactions we kind of go through that process in this chapter, but we go through it with someone that makes us mad because Tywin is such a jerk about it. He's so hypocritical and unthinking and callous about it that it just makes it. It's this is probably part of why the Red Wedding sits the way it does. It's one thing to read it and to have all this overwhelm you. It's another thing to immediately get these takes from Tywin that just makes you clench your fist and feel frustrated with this the way he's reacting. No wonder people you can e easily miss the small things about Tyrion that aren't so great in this chapter and it, because there's so many other awful things going. Tyrion is nothing again compared to Tywin and Joffrey in this chapter. Heck, even Cersei is is terrible in this chapter and she's barely in it. Joe points out that this is also a key chapter for realigning our focus for the rest of the book. Yeah, the Red Wedding's this big, important, climactic moment, but it's nowhere near the end of the book. We still got a lot of book left, let alone a lot of series left. So while it's a climax, it's, it's really a, a matter of new beginnings. Now, a little bit about Sansa. She's barely in the chapter. Uh, Tyrion, of course, is really dreading telling her what's happened. We haven't seen her reaction yet. Instead of bonding over Sansa's nightly visits to the Godswood, it's interesting to learn that she's making nightly visits to the godswood with the Tyrells out of play. Yeah, she's focused on her way out through Dantos. Also, a very, very small note here is, is the, the notation of the money situation here. Tyrion is thinking about how the antler men, how he flung, how he let Joffrey fling some of them over the walls and how many of them owed money. <laughs> so he's still worried about the crown's finances. That's kind of an ongoing, very minor piece of business that's going to matter more later. Tyrion's never going to solve it, obviously. And that's going to really open the door for the Iron Bank and maybe some faceless men to start getting involved. That's a, a developing thing that we'll be keeping an eye on for later. But of course, it's also a, a reminder of Littlefinger and how his plotting and planning and financial chicanery 
left King's Landing in bad shape in ways that they don't even know to fully blame on him. Tyrion expects that Littlefinger is maybe done some book cooking, but mostly he's just confused. Mostly he's just confused. He's not that suspicious. It's mostly confusion and like, how do I make sense of all this? Well, if you were to make sense of all that, it would look real bad. But it would also look real clever because Littlefinger is, well, if nothing else, he's real clever. Uh, Nina brings up a point that you raised sort of here, Ashea, uh, Tywin having the nerve to mention, when your enemies go to their knees, you must help them back to their feet. <laughs> because Reynard Rain offered to surrender and, well, he got drowned uh, along with all those other people at Castamere. Well, Gen- I want to mention, uh, as Nina points out, it's like 300 other men, women, and children. It's not like yeah. a household. That, you know, it's not like a smaller household. It is a lot of people. Yeah, there's there's people that had no rain blood whatsoever in that castle that were drowned. And they probably weren't even that loyal to House Rain. They were just like, this is just a job. Like It's like the, the janitors on the yeah, Death Star. I wonder how many of them were just like, <laughs> I'm just visiting. I'm <laughs> yeah. passing through. I have nothing to do with these people. Uh, so if we're being super generous, or if it's somebody else, we could say, Tywin's not being a hypocrite here to Joffrey. He learned. When he didn't accept the Rain surrender, he learned that, was, that he should have. But I just... I just can't go that far with Tywin. If this was somebody else, I might be like, okay, he was young. He learned his lesson. But Tywin is, just has such a history of hypocrisy that to me, that's more likely what's going on here. He's just being a hypocrite. He's like, you need to learn this lesson, Joffrey. I didn't because I'm smart enough to be able to tell the difference. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Here's a, uh, a bit of irony here. He knows nothing. He has heard tales, stable gossip, and kitchen calumnies. He has no crumb of proof. Ser Gregor is certainly not about to confess to him. <laughs> of course, that's talking about the Red Viper. Ser Gregor does indeed confess to him. <laughs> he's like, ah, Elia of Dorne. I first I, yeah. As he's m- mashing in Oberyn's face, he does in fact confess to Oberyn and to everyone else in earshot, which is an awful lot of people. As for the conversation about whether Elia was specifically mentioned in Tywin's orders, Tywin says, I didn't mention her at all. Gregor killed her because I said nothing. It's an open question. Uh, Nina doesn't think that Tywin ordered Gregor to rape and murder Elia, and I agree with that. I think by itself, it's a little, it's like why, it, he, he's, he, it, the political fallout for that is, is difficult, and he would know that. On the other hand, Tywin's pride is really powerful. So what I think happens is, and Nina agrees, is that he wanted Elia to die, but would never admit to it because he would be admitting to doing something that's politically stupid, <laughs> even though his pride has demanded it. So that's kind of where I fall on that. He knew Elia would probably get killed by not mentioning her. He allowed Gregor to kill her because he knew, you know, he, Gregor's such a brutal guy. He claims he didn't know how brutal Gregor was at that point, which is possible. It is possible. But then again, how did he know that he would obey killing a child? He specifically was like, hey, kill this baby. We just got through talking about how Tywin is very good at understanding what his men are capable of. So he gave the order to kill a baby to a person he knew would be willing to kill a baby. 
the idea that he didn't know how bad Gregor was, how brutal he was, that lie doesn't really work. Especially the especially when he says this about Amory Lorch. He gave the other task of killing Rainey's, the seven-year-old, to Amory Lorch. Amory Lorch had already thrown a child into a well back during the Rain Tarbeck Rebellion. This exact same rain Reigns of Castamere times. So Tywin knew he had knew who he was dealing with when he sent Amory Lorch in there. So he's supposed to say, hey, I sent this one brutal child murderer after a child that I ordered killed. But I didn't know what I had with Gregor when I sent him after another child to kill that child. This just does not add up. It's another pretty clear lie by Tywin when you really spell it all out. But Tyrion is just in the moment, he's not thinking about all this. And he probably doesn't want to believe the worst about his father as much as he hates him. Elia is a minor parallel to Catelyn as well in this sense, because... Tywin thought Catelyn was going to be kept alive as a hostage. And he, this conversation is happening at a time when he's like, yeah, Elia should have been kept alive. It would have been better to have her as a hostage. Killing her didn't make much sense. But why was Catelyn killed? Well, may, maybe Walder wanted to keep her alive, but he probably was very fine with her dying because he doesn't like her and he's brutal and murderous and prideful and all that. Same with Tywin. Same with Tywin. It's like, yeah, let's, let's have her killed. He, he does not like Elia because she's the one that's indirectly stole uh, the the Rhaegar marriage from Cersei. If you recall, he really wanted that marriage and Elia's the one who got it. So you can see why he would... Uh, and you know, women have so much agency. It's yeah. all her fault. It's all her fault. It's also what uh, Joanna wanted. Joanna wanted the, the Elia to marry uh, Jamie. So it's like, wait. Uh, People just liked Elia. She was a sweet girl, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. They weren't judging her, apparently, based on her uh, broodmare capabilities. Clearly, yeah. She <laughs> did not look like she would have some healthy kids. And then Tywin says, like, oh, the blood is on Walder Frey's hands for the Red Wedding. I mean, he's like, he says, well, yeah, he approached me with this offer to kill the king at dinner. And I'm like, yeah, I accepted his offer, but I'm not the one who did it. What would you have me do? not accept his offer. This is when he says it's more noble to kill 12 men at dinner than 10,000 in battle. This is that's right when he drops this line, so it's like, oh, come on, Tywin. Yes, your logic isn't the worst, but it does not apply to what you're saying. It, your that logic does not apply to you. And Tywin is also pretty blandly blithely declaring how he plans on betraying Roose Bolton. He's like, yeah, the Boltons are going to get fake Arya. They're, you know, he mentions the ghost of Renly as uh, as the clue that they're going to send a fake Arya. Uh, and he says, and he, all you got to do is get Sansa pregnant and then you can claim Winterfell, which is clearly go would be taking the north from Roose Bolton, who he's just had as an ally. So, of course, Roose Bolton's not fooled by any of that. Roose Bolton isn't trusting Tywin either. But it just goes to show how much of an alliance of convenience this is. They've already planned on betraying each other after they accomplished this shared goal of, of slaughtering the Starks. Yeah. The way that's actually going to play out is uh, ye, this, the, key, the so-called key to the North, Sansa, is going to escape. Jamie's going to refuse the rock and this so-called and so the backup heir, Tyrion, that may not be Tywin's real heir, who Tywin definitely was doesn't want him to be his heir, regardless of whose blood he really is, is going to be found guilty. 
Uh, and Gregor, of course, will announce that he did that thing, that admission. He will confess. And, of course, Tywin getting murdered at the end of that. Let's, let's mention that, too. <laughs> Here's a few examples of Tywin not plotting. Beside the, uh, well, I just gave one of them. Double dealing with Roos is a pretty big one. Double dealing with Joy Hill is another one. Joy Hill is, is his brother's bastard daughter. It seems that he has both promised Joy Hill to one of Walder Frey's bastard sons, yet also he's promised her to one of the Spicers, to Reynald, he said, who would have a bride from Casterly Rock. And really, that's the only one he could have. It's Joy Hill, as far as we can tell. So more double dealing from Tywin, but not plotting. No, it's not plotting. Mm-mm. And it's funny that Tywin's complaining how I did not fight a war to seat Robert II on the Iron Throne when, with, with, in terms of Joffrey when he's fought a war to seat Robert I on the throne. <laughs> so, well, he didn't fight the war. He, he sat out the war till the last minute then sacked King's Landing to seat Robert Baratheon I on the throne. And again, as I said, Tywin being blind to emotions, he's pretty blind to the Dornish threat here. He he describes Doran as subtle, deliberate, a man who weighs the consequences of every word and every action, yet hasn't really seemingly, maybe he's thought about it in ways we haven't seen, but doesn't, hasn't applied that line of thinking to Oberyn's presence. He's like, well, yeah, he's weighed the consequence of every word and every action, yet he sent Oberyn the Red Viper to this nest of Tyrells and, and Lannisters. Oberyn, who very, very much wants revenge, yet Doran sent him. So what does that mean? Well, Tywin may just be oblivious. He may just be thinking he's above it all, thinking he's out of the woods, thinking that they're too much like him. There's also a little bit of a hint for his death. Tyrion mentions twice that there's a brisk wind blowing outside. Wind blowing in this series is more telling than, than often is said in literary uh, circles, but winds blowing often associate with winter or downfalls and the coming of vengeance. And of course, winter in, like, like I said, winter is an even bigger deal in this series because of winter is coming. But this is perhaps a sign of the vengeance of the Red Wedding, that winter is coming for Tywin Lannister even though it's going to be Tyrion and not people from the Starks or Tullys that get him. Amir Debai points out that from incest makes Down syndrome more likely because it shortens the chromosome, the 21 chromosomes. Okay, that's good to know. And Liat Rubenfeld says there's, it's, it's, incest is very common in real world royalty. Yeah. It's true. There is a lot of it. Like the Habsburgs are probably one of the most uh, well-known examples. Hemophilia, big common enough trait of those dynasties. That was certainly the case for what's his name? The Tsar of Russia, the one that was the young Tsar of Russia that was treated by Rasputin. He had really bad hemophilia. And that was believed to be part of the extreme incest practices of those Russian dynasties. So there you go. That's uh, a little bit more added into that. And one other quote that I think is really important, backing up to Sansa and Tyrion's brief conversation about the Godswood. 
Though the sound of rustling leaves might be a pleasant change from some septon droning on about the seven aspects of grace. Yeah, rustling leaves. That's a really important line. It's very tongue-in-cheek because rustling, the sound of rustling is the direct sound, the word George uses to indicate voices or communication coming from a werewood. We did a lot of research on this in our werewood series, and it is very distinct. When when Theon hears Bran, it's rustling. When Ned thinks he hears Bran through the werewood, it's rustling. There's this, it, anytime there's this secret voice of the old gods, George uses the word rustling. So this is a pretty big deal. He's literally referring to the sound of the voice of the old gods as compared to the sound of Septons talking about the seven aspects of grace. Oh, yeah. That is all we have. For today, that's all for Tyrion 6. That's all for this batch of chapters. Red Wedding Sunday has come and it's about to go. I hope you all enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't too emotionally devastating to go back through all that again. It's so, so powerful. So I don't blame you if you uh, just didn't have the stomach for it today. Maybe some other time. But maybe you just want to keep on going. So next week, well, we'll be back. We have four chapters. Instead of six, it's the opposite of pacing. Instead of a bunch of quick chapters, we have four very long chapters, starting with Davos 5. The gang gets a letter from the wall, a.k.a. Are you really going to burn your nephew? Really? John 7. The Thens get kissed by fire, a.k.a. the one where Egret dies. Mm. I don't want to make any fancy title for that one. Just, you know, I don't want to joke about Egret's death. So it's just the one where Egret dies. You could be like the one where we regret Egret. <laughs> Brand four, Storytime Nightfort, a.k.a. the gang meets Sam and Gilly. Daenerys four, Sell Me the Staff Ninja, a.k.a. the one where Jorah gets outed. Yeah. Last week, we covered 179 minutes and 30 seconds of audiobook time. This week, 151 minutes, 24 seconds. So far, that's 1,825 minutes, 41 seconds out of 2,853 minutes, 37 seconds. So we've got about 1,000 minutes of A Storm of Swords left, a little under a third, plenty left, quite a bit left. You can always take a look at the video length, which looks like it's about 250-ish. See how much we edited out for the podcast. Thanks to everyone for coming. Thanks for your comments. This was a particularly uh, audience participation-y episode given the Red Wedding takes. Thanks to Ashea for all her great work behind the camera, reading quotes, managing all those comments, and keeping track of all the technology. Quite a lot to be doing at once. Thanks again to Joe Buckley and Nina for their excellent takes and adding into Valar Reritas, making it more thorough, more well-considered, and just better all around. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for all their great work in posting each chapter each week, leading the discussion over there, and helping us generate even more great takes and questions, similar to the ones we get from Flick and Slack and Discord, which are the other places you can join the conversation ahead of time, or just during, it's not all about our rereadist discussion on those, in those channels. We talk about anything and everything, games, what's happening out in the world, etc., you name it. Thanks to Claradox.de and Kevin McLeod. Thanks to Joey and Doey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the intro-outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for his audio assistance. Thank you very much to our patrons for the financial support for keeping us going during particularly difficult times. 
And thanks to everyone who liked and shared and subscribed and left a comment. You would probably be surprised at how much that helps us get noticed out in the world, how much that helps us get picked up by the algorithms and all that. And as always, if you're watching live, it's great to catch Stephen Stark's channel, Here Be Dragons, right after each episode of Valar Reread Us. It starts at 6 o'clock Eastern, which is often right about when we're ending, which is uh, particularly true today. So we'll catch you all next time for more Valar Reread Us.